When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Good morning, my friends, or afternoon, or evening, whatever time it is for you. Regardless of time of day, it's a great time to be in scriptures. So you're in the right spot. This is Unshaken. My name is Jared Halverson, and we are going to deep dive into scripture for the next few hours. Uh, I hope that this year in the Bible so far has helped rekindle your relationship with this book of books, the most influential book that has ever been written. And I hope it's been influencing you for, for good. Uh, we're going to... Well, I'll put it this way. Uh, not every book in the Bible is created equal as far as its immediate relevance to people or their, their personal preferences. I've sometimes asked my students, any guesses what the three most hated books of the Bible are? Uh, they usually come up with Isaiah quickly, and that's correct. Uh, they'll often remember Revelation, and that's another one. Uh, and the third, that takes them a while. Sometimes they'll say Song of Solomon, uh, other times they'll say, oh, the book of Numbers, the title alone kind of makes it sound boring. We'll see that next week. It's way better than the title. Uh, but honestly, in my opinion, the three most hated books of Scripture in the Bible are Isaiah, Revelation, and Leviticus, uh, which is what we're studying today. Some people pronounce it, leave it, you cuss. It's just like, leave this thing alone. I don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. It's just odd. It's a lot of strange things. It is, it is law. Uh, it is very specific commandments and sacrificial rites and how to perform them. Uh, this is a tricky book, but it's the book that will occupy our time today. Now, I've followed up that question with a second question for my students. Uh, if those are the three most hated books of the Bible, can anybody guess what the three most symbolic books of the Bible are? And sure enough, they're the same three. That's why they're hated. People can't stand Isaiah because he's so confusing. They don't like Revelation because beasts and horns and dragons and, and just what on earth is, is John talking about here? And same with the book of, of Leviticus. These sacrificial rites and what to do with the kidneys and the call of the liver and, and the burnt offerings and heave offerings and what on earth is this all about? Uh, to me, that's tragic that the three most hated books seem to be the three most symbolic books. Because it suggests that you and I, at least in our Western mentality, we're not very good with symbolism. We prefer prose to poetry. We want uh, facts more than we want art. Uh, we want something very clear that will resonate on, in the mind with pure rationalism, rather than something that aims a little lower, or spiritually speaking, a little higher uh, for the heart trying to wow, let us partake of the fruit of the tree of life, eat it, come to know it viscerally, experience it, rather than just coming to, to read the sidebar, the sidebar uh, on the back of the, of the box saying, these are the nutritional facts of this fruit. No, we need to experience some things, and symbolism helps us do it. 
Now they say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, a symbol is worth a thousand lessons. Why do you think Jesus taught in parables? Why do you think President Monson shared so many stories? Why do you think scripture is so infused with symbolism? Because if it was just data that we were trying to digest, then maybe a read or two and you're done. But with symbolism, there's layer after layer after layer of meaning. And you can go back for a lifetime's worth of scripture study and peel away new layers of insight. Uh, there are burning bushes on practically every page for us to turn aside to see. And so we're going to do some turning aside and seeing today throughout the book of Leviticus. Uh, you can probably get away with going through life without understanding Leviticus. That's less true of the book of Revelation, since it helps us navigate our last days. Uh, and it's definitely not true of, of Isaiah, since the Lord himself gave us the command to study the words of Isaiah, because they are great. That's his adjective. But perhaps even more important for us is if we keep stumbling over symbolism and ever able to wrap our minds and heart, better yet, our hearts around it, then the temple will never fully endow us with the power from on high that God is offering us there. There is no more symbolic place in all the kingdom of God than the holy temple. And as we saw the tabernacle uh, designed last week, as we'll see it briefly constructed today, Oh, we have to have the eyes to see. In fact, speaking of eyes, uh, my uncle, uh, Mike Wilcox, incredible teacher, uh, he gave my sister and I uh, and my cousin a temple prep lesson the day before we were in doubt, or the week before we were in doubt. And we all were in doubt at the same time. It was an amazing experience. But in it, one of the things that struck me most from that preparation was the importance of learning to see symbolism. In fact, he described it as picture a pair of glasses and then write the word symbol across each lens. Then put them on, symbolically speaking, metaphorically, as you enter the temple. Uh, that way, everything you look at has symbol written all over it. And I loved that. That doesn't mean that it unlocks what the symbol might mean. But it does tip you off to know that what I'm looking at is symbolic. It's meant to be. There is supposed to be some kind of lesson beyond the surface level. And so in the temple, what I see, what I wear, what I'm doing. We saw that last week with some of the sacrificial rites. We saw it with the, the furnishings of the tabernacle. We saw it in the incredible high priestly robes that Aaron would wear. And if he had his glasses on and looked at the, the stones on the shoulder or the stones on the breastplate or the pomegranates at the bottom of his hem, then he would see, ah, there's something symbolic there. And I pray that when we go to the temple, rather than being a negative experience because it's just over our heads. I've sometimes joked that uh, if I had, I had a conversation in divinity school with a Catholic and a Protestant friend. There were just three of us sitting in class before class started. And it sounds like a good joke starting, right? A Catholic, a Protestant, and a, a Latter-day Saint sit together in divinity school. Well, they asked, where do you guys fit with the, the Protestant-Catholic divide? And I just laughed and I said, if you two got married and had a kid, it would be me. Uh, if you, same with if Judaism and Christianity got married and had a child, it would be the restored gospel of Jesus Christ as well. And as they were looking at me confused and looking at each other like, hey, we're not even interested. I get it. Uh, I said, well, Catholic, Catholicism by and large is high liturgy, very symbolic, the mass, very rich in ritual. Whereas Protestantism, by and large, is what they call low liturgy. 
that there isn't as much symbolism. It might be something very simple like bread and water or bread and wine for the sacrament. But for the most part, it's a lot less than what you'd see in a, in a Catholic church or an Eastern Orthodox church for that matter. Uh, the Protestantism focuses on the preaching of the word and Catholicism has a, a greater focus on the, the symbolism of the sacraments. And as Latter-day Saints, we're proving contraries as usual between those two. And like I said, the same could be said of Judaism with its high symbolic uh, value, its teachings, its focus, and Christianity, which as a whole compared to Judaism is much less so. And here we are trying to combine, trying to restore both worlds. As I said to my two friends, to my Protestant friend, if you joined our church, you're no pressure, but you're welcome to. Now, if you joined our church, you'd be very comfortable at church because that's our Protestant side of the family. But you, my Catholic friend, if you joined the church, you'd probably very, be very comfortable in the temple. That's more of our Catholic side of the family coming through uh, with its rich symbolism. And so as we, and that's why, unfortunately, many Latter-day Saints who've grown up in the only familiar with the Protestant side of the family, as soon as they go to the temple for the first time and meet the Catholic side, the symbolic side, the, the deeply ritualistic side, it's so different. Uh, I can't believe mom and dad actually met each other and fell in love. Well, there's some reasons for that. But on this Catholic side of the family, on this high liturgy, on this symbolic side, this Jewish side, this Old Testament side, oh, there's incredible reason for that and depth and meaning. God is trying to stretch our souls and it takes some stretching of the mind to get us there. But as we go and ponder and try to understand to put our, those glasses on, see that symbolism is everywhere, and then think and ponder and pray and turn aside to see and ask the Lord to help peel away another layer of insight. That is how line upon line, precept upon precept, we end up being endowed with power from on high and endowed with incredible insight into the kinds of things God can teach us only personally only through the gift and power of the Holy Ghost. So as we dive into Leviticus today particularly, I hope by the end it's no longer your least favorite book. A lot of the things have been fulfilled in Christ as far as the sacrificial rites and rituals are concerned. So there's less relevance as far as day-to-day -day action. We don't have to worry about the call of the liver or the kidneys. However, if we have eyes to see, I pray that we will find relevance in every chapter. And though we cannot do verse by verse anymore, sorry, we've got 55 pages of material to cover today. Uh, the curriculum suggests we only study chapter 1, chapter 16, and chapter 19. And you know me, I, will, I can't settle just for that. And so I want to give you at least an insight or two in every chapter in Leviticus. And we still have a little bit of Exodus to wrap up and, and finish off. Uh, so we can't do verse, to, verse by verse, and I'm sorry for that. You're probably not. Uh, but I do hope that the Spirit will give us eyes to see and that by the end of today, Leviticus will be off the list of least favorite books because symbolism will have become more of oh, a, a foreign language that you desire to learn so that you can experience the things, feel, taste, partake of the things that God would have us come to understand. Now, last week in the book of Exodus, we spent a lot of time there, uh, and it was all preliminary and preparatory in many ways. 
I mentioned at the beginning of last week's lesson that I was going to front end uh, and, and focus on the chapters that, that Come Follow Me skipped for last week, which was the spiritual creation, the design of the tabernacle. This week we're supposed to focus on the actual construction of it. But I think the design is even more oh, powerful. What, there's more insight in those earlier chapters in Exodus than even in these last ones. But I do want to give you at least a few highlights in the last five or six chapters of Exodus before we really dive headfirst into the book of Leviticus. Now where we left off last week is here is the, the plans of, of the tabernacle. This is what it's supposed to look like in all of its furnishings in the holiest of holies and in the holy place and outside in the, in the courtyard. And uh, here's what the high priests are supposed to wear and here's the, the anointing oil and the, the incense and how you, how you put it all together. But if we don't, if we leave it there, then they've been taught incredible things and given some amazing blueprints, but there's nothing actually on the ground to show for it. And I do worry sometimes that, that we can be shown some spiritual insight, and it's such a powerful experience feeling the Spirit and having those kinds of the veil part in that way. It feels so good that it almost feels like we actually did something, <laughs> and we haven't yet. We saw the burning bush and it was amazing, but we haven't got the message yet because we haven't turned aside to see. We went to general conference as we all recently did and it was such an amazing experience. But as President Hinckley used to joke at the end of conferences, well, it's all over now except the work. And so based on everything we studied last week, it is all over. Well, the design phase and all that's left now is the work. So let's get to work. In Exodus 35, Here's all these offerings for the tabernacle ready to be contributed. We've got, we got to roll up our sleeves and get at it. So in verse 1, Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded, that ye should do them. Do them. Don't just sit back and hear them. This is King Benjamin and near the end of his address where he says, And if ye believe all these things, see that ye do them. Belief is wonderful, but as James has pointed out, the devils believe and tremble. They have faith. They just don't have any works to back them up. And so Moses tells the people, we've got to do this. Okay, Spiritual phase, over. Physical phase, let's move forward. He then spends a few verses talking about the Sabbath again, which is interesting. It's like, here's let's ground ourselves in this sanctuary of time this epicenter of holiness, and then we'll reach out from there. And then verse 4, Moses spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take ye from among you an offering unto the Lord, whosoever is of a willing heart. Let him bring it, an offering of the Lord. And how's this for a good summary of what we studied last week? Gold, silver, brass, and blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, and badger's skins, and shatim wood, and oil for the light, and spices for anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, and onyx stones, and stones to be set for the ephod, and for the breastplate. There's every ingredient. So many different ways to give. Do you have anything on that list? Then offer it, and offer it willingly. 
Notice he mentioned, before he gets to any of those other specific things, his focus is on the heart, which is what he's been after all along. We'll see that over and over in this one chapter. I think the word heart shows up nine different times in Exodus 35, because that's what the Lord's really aiming for. We'll see that when Jesus comes to fulfill the law, and he says, you know, from now on, leave your sheep and goats and oxen at home, but make sure you bring your broken heart and contrite spirit. That has always been what I've been seeking through these sacrifices. And so before I repeat the list of required ingredients, let me summarize them with the whole, namely a willing heart. Now in verse 10, there's another part of the heart that he's after. He says, every wise hearted among you shall come and make all that the Lord hath commanded. And then if the previous verses were a summary of the specific ingredients, these next verses are a summary, a repeat of all of the, the eventual products. This is, this is what you were actually aiming for and trying to construct. The tabernacle, his tent and his covering, his tashes, his boards, his bars, his pillars, his sockets, the ark and the staves thereof with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering, the table and the, his staves and all his vessels and the showbread, the candlestick also for the light and his furniture and his lamps with the oil for the light and the incense altar and his staves and the anointing oil and the sweet incense and the hanging for the door at the entering in of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with his brazen grate, his staves, all his vessels, the laver and his foot, the hangings of the court, his pillars, their sockets, the hanging for the door of the court, the pins of the tabernacle, and the pins of the court and their cords, the cloths of service to do service in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister in the priest's office. <sighs> That's quite the list. Uh, and so having explained all of this spiritual design, well, for the physical construction to begin, let's, here's our, our to-do list. Here's our inventory. And these are the assignments that the Lord has given us all. Everything from the Ark of the Covenant with its throne of atonement all the way down to the tiniest pin that helps hold everything together. Are we willing to offer it? In fact, is our heart willing to give? And then is our heart wise to know what to do with all that's been given? I love the difference there. Again, the first list, here's these specific things. Is your heart willing? Will you give them? But now that we have them, what are we going to do with all this stuff? Uh, I've got all these golden earrings. Uh, anybody know how to melt them down and turn them into something better than golden calves? Sorry, Aaron. Uh, what are we going to do all, with all of this? And so the willingness was shown on the contribution. The wisdom will be shown in the construction. And to, to think about that in terms of your own callings. We've seen this before with Elder Bednar's help, that it's good to be uh, Christ-like, but it's better to be competent as well as Christ-like. Uh, it's good to have the spiritual gifts, but you also will need the skill sets. And proving that set of contraries of am I consecrated, but also am I qualified? Now, whom the Lord calls, he qualifies, President Monson always said, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, usually it starts with the willing heart, but we need to turn our willingness into wisdom. 
we need to read the instruction manual, which is what Leviticus will be for the priests of Israel. We need to, to get up to speed. And so couple your willing heart with a wise heart. And let's get to work here. On verse 20, all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him up, everyone whom his spirit made willing. And they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle of the congregation and for all his service and for the holy garments. They came. Oh, they heeded the invitation of the prophet. This is all the stuff that God is going to need or that we're going to need to be able to build this house to God. Will you come? And what's amazing, when, when the saints were in such poverty in Kirtland, but they needed to build a house to the Lord, and they came. In Nauvoo, despite persecution all around them, needing to build another house of the Lord, and they came. In Salt Lake, having barely got their feet underneath them and little dugouts to live in, in the, in the hillsides of Salt Lake. But it's time to build a temple. Despite the fact that, yes, the bells of hell will begin to ring all over again. But they came. And true disciples of Jesus Christ just keep coming. How many more temples were just announced in General Conference? It's amazing to see them dotting the earth and people coming People whose hearts God had stirred up. Hearts of willingness and hearts of wisdom, ready to become hearts of work to come and, and do. In verse 23, every man with whom was found blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. Every one that did offer an offering of silver and brass brought the Lord's offering, and every man with whom was found shatim wood for any work of the service brought it. I like how he puts it. If any blue or purple or scarlet is found with you, if any shatim wood, you're just kind of looking around the garage, just kind of rummaging through some things, and you notice, whoa, here's something that the Lord could use. This could be put into service for him. Wonderful. If you've got it, then bring it. If it's found with you, then let it be given to God. And they bring it. In verse 25, the women do as well. All the women that were wise-hearted, there's that word again, did spin with their hands and brought that which they had spun, both of blue and of purple and of scarlet and of fine linen. All the women whose heart stirred them up in wisdom spun goat's hair. Now, I definitely lack the wisdom of those wise-hearted women. On my mission, when I got a tear in my pants once, not knowing how to sew it back together, I pulled out the stapler, and that was good enough. Uh, but for the Lord's house, that's not going to be good enough. And so you picture these women that have spent a lifetime sewing and weaving their own clothing, their clothing for their families, their loved ones. Oh, now putting that wisdom to work for an even higher, more exalted purpose? I don't know how on earth you spin goat's hair. But they had the wisdom to do just that. It's amazing to think of a ward council, to think of, oh, the gifts and talents of a, of a congregation. It's all right there. If people can just rummage through their own skill sets and, and spiritual gifts and come and bring an offer. Oh, there is wisdom as long as there is willingness to, to, to give it to God. 
In verse 29, the children of Israel brought a willing offering unto the Lord. Every man and woman whose heart made them willing to bring for all manner of work which the Lord had commanded to be made by the hand of Moses. Do our hearts make us willing? In verse 30, Moses said unto the children of Israel, See, the Lord hath called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. But even he, one of the names we know, would need the help of all these no-namers that are contributing all that we have. He hath filled him, Bezalel, with the Spirit of God, in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship, and to devise curious works, to work in gold and in silver and in brass, and in the cutting of stones, to set them, in carving of wood, to make any manner of cunning work. You see, yes, Bezalel, this shadow of the Lord, he will be able to bring it all together. He has the necessary skill set, but he can't do all the work by himself. I think, again, back to this ward council idea, it does take a wise-hearted bishop to be able to notice all of the spiritual gifts and skill sets and temporal talents that his ward members have, and then somehow be able to weave them all together into a group, a community of consecrators that's ready to do anything. I'm amazed noticing oh, local wards and stakes that, well, recently I've seen some that have constructed their own tabernacle, literally, and then invited the surrounding community to come and see to do oh, the, the, the amount of talent that's required to pull off a cultural celebration in conjunction with a temple dedication, for example. And it's all right there among the local members of the church. It just takes a Bezalel to realize, I can't do all this on my own. It's just impossible. And I might have a, a great list of skills and attributes, as was listed there, but to be able to notice those in other people and draw them in, we saw that back in Exodus 18, right? Jethro's counsel to Moses, draw upon the talents and, and the gifts of others. Well, he's definitely doing all of that now. In some ways, Bezalel becomes the savior figure here, where you want to talk about someone filled with the Spirit of God, wisdom and understanding and knowledge to an infinite degree. But what does he do? He notices in lowly old us, Oh, you've got some blue there. Can you share it? You're amazing when it comes to the weaving of goat's hair. We could use that. And what's amazing to me is just see the Lord's ability to gather a people together and, speaking of weaving, weave our talents and gifts into a tapestry that is, that is the tent of testimony, a tabernacle meant to provide shelter for every daughter and son of God. Let's get weaving, my friends. Let's get working. In verse 34, he hath put in his heart, we're still talking Bezalel here, that he may teach both he and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. Remember, Aholiab was going to be Bezalel's right-hand man. The tent of the father, Aholiab, working alongside Bezalel, the shadow of God. Well, to see the two of them, not just working together, but making sure everybody else could work alongside them. In their heart was this desire to teach. And that's a powerful thing that we need to think about too, especially those of you in positions of leadership. 
Is your heart, did you, have you put in your heart the need, the desire to teach, to prepare other people to take your place? I love, by the way, that, again, the name Bezalel, in the shadow of, of God. If you're in the shadow of God, then you know you're not the light. And that's so important for any leader that is so gifted and so talented, like Bezalel was. Knowing that you're a candlestick and not the candle you're meant to hold up. That you are the shadow of God and not the light itself. I think that would make it a little bit easier to delegate. A little easier to involve other people. Since all of us are simply turning to the light of the world. Then verse 35. One last mention of the heart. Them, Bezalel, Aholiab, and everybody else that works alongside them. Hath he filled with wisdom of heart, to work all manner of work, of the engraver, of the cunning workman, of the embroiderer, in blue, in purple, in scarlet, in fine linen, of the weaver, even of them that do any work, and of those that devise cunning work. Perhaps you remember the story that President Monson told, when as a very, very young bishop, finding out that a German family who had immigrated to the United States was moving into their ward boundaries, into an apartment that was Oh, horribly dilapidated. And as he went to look and see where they would be moving into, his heart just went out to them and realized, we have to do better by these, by these struggling saints. So what did he do? He gathered wise and willing-hearted people in his ward and gathered the ward council and said, okay, we've got to make a difference here. And again, the list that we saw there in verse 35, who's a good engraver? Do we have any of those? Any good cunning workmen? Any embroiderers? Any weavers? And among that, that circle of saints, anyone who can lay carpet, anyone that can replaster walls, anyone put, can paint or put up wallpaper, anyone that can oh, do some cabinetry or carpentry work. And sure enough, within that one congregation were exactly the skill sets that were needed to bless this family's life and bless it deeply. Well, chapter 36 shows just how willing these wise-hearted saints were. In verse 1, Then wrought Bezaleel and Aholiab, and every wise-hearted man in whom the Lord put wisdom and understanding, to know how to work all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary, according to all that the Lord had commanded. So it's happening. It's go time. And everybody's coming. Everybody's bringing. They realize, wait, you can use what I have to offer? My skill set or my set of attributes might actually come in handy here. Oh, I want to give. I want to participate. I have a stake in this temple, this tabernacle, and I want, I want to offer all that I have. I actually remember when I was graduating from college, and I went to a religion professor that I had come to know well, uh, we'd spent time together in Jerusalem, and then worked together in the Religious Studies Center, and just an amazing mentor. And I remember saying to him, I eventually plan on going on to graduate school. And I, I'm j I just want to build the kingdom. That's all I want to do in life. And I just want to know what skill set. Should I become an embroiderer or a weaver or a workman? What? And I remember asking him, what does the church need as far as what you know? I, I, I described it. I was like, I wish there was like a list. I mean, you can look at the wantads, right? Uh, and see that these are all of these positions that need to be filled. I wish there was a list, I don't know, call it holes in the kingdom. 
help wanted to build to, to further the work of God. And I just wished I knew everything that the Lord was looking for to further his work. Because then if I had that list, and then if I prayerfully brainstormed my own list of interests, of qualities, of spiritual gifts, of, of skill sets, of experience, and then cross-checked the lists and saw, oh, they need somebody with that? I have that. Maybe I should do that. I remember at the time him saying, you know, we could use a good scholar of ancient Persia. That would really help. Uh, we've got Egypt, Egyptologists, and we have Hebraists, and we have uh, all kinds of experts in the ancient Near East. But ancient Persia? Yeah, we could use some help in that. And I remember walking away thinking, good luck finding that helper, because it ain't me. <laughs> it's, uh, ancient Persia, I'm sure, will draw the interests of, of some of God's children. Uh, I'm not on that list, uh, or at least that's not on my list. And so... I guess I'll just keep looking and keep learning and keep growing up in God in hopes that I'll have something eventually to contribute. I am so grateful that through graduate school, the Lord did nudge and guide me towards some strange studies on religious conflict and, and anti-religious rhetoric and how people attack faith and the history of doubt and the process of secularization and and it's been amazing to me just to see how willing the Lord has been to accept a willing heart. As unwise as it tends to be, but a willingness to grow in wisdom and try to get up to speed and develop some, some talents or some skill sets or some knowledge bases in hopes of being able to lay them on the altar and consecrate them to God. Oh, perhaps it'll take some prayers on all of our parts and an open eye to notice the so-called holes in the kingdom, places where we might contribute. And then, like I said, to brainstorm our own backgrounds and see where we can make a difference. And more than just in our formal callings from priesthood leadership, we, we need to be willing to be called by the Lord directly. And not to overstep our bounds and take over the Relief Society or the Elders Quorum. That's not what I'm saying. But, but step into the bounds of God. Step into the roles and responsibilities He wants to give us just to bless humanity at large. It's one of the things I loved about the South. It wasn't uh, a formal calling that most of my evangelical friends were given. But so often they just rolled up their sleeves and did good things because they felt called of God to do it. They called it their ministry. And I think... Now, even above and beyond formal callings, we can also have personal ministries. Not because our bishop or stake president asked us to, but because the Lord inspired us to. And I am seeing that unfold in these final chapters of Exodus. As all of these contributions come flooding in. And flooding is a good word for it. We'll see that in the next few verses. Verse 2, Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab. And every wise-hearted man in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, even every one whose heart stirred him up to come unto the work to do it. You see the heart appear over and over in these verses too. The wisdom as well as the willingness. Their hearts stirred them up to come. Now, we, speak, we see here a formal calling. Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab. 
But we see those informal ministries that I just mentioned, where the Lord is stirring up their hearts to come. Remember the great verse in section 4, that incredible missionary revelation, that if you have desires to serve, then you're called to the work. You don't have to wait for anything formal. You don't have to wait for the raised right hand in sacrament meeting. If your hearts have stirred you up, if you have a desire, then you're called. Go make a difference. In verse 3, they received of Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of the sanctuary, to make it withal. And they brought yet unto him free offerings every morning. Notice the process. They're giving to Moses. Every morning they're showing up with more and more and more. I keep finding shatim wood. It's amazing. Uh, I'm just rummaging through the, the, the plundering of Egypt, all the stuff that we brought out. And yeah, it seems like we have everything. I was a little worried when you first mentioned the 12 different gemstones that would be on the, the breastplate of judgment. But sure enough, they keep showing up <laughs> as we're finding things. And so they're giving them to Moses every morning. And what does Moses do? He turns around and gives it to Bezalel and Aholiab and all these wise-hearted uh, craftsmen and craftswomen. And that to me is beautiful too. It's like you come to the bishop and, well, this is consecration in a nutshell. I am giving my all and then those with those responsibility will then redistribute out. This is what you can now do with it. You might not have had the, the, the jewels, but you are an engraver. So here's the jewels to go engrave. You didn't have all of the, the fabric, the, the materials, but you're a weaver, you're an embroiderer. Then let me take the materials from someone who has the willingness but not the wisdom and then give them to you who have the wisdom. And then you'll be able to do with them all that the Lord expects from us all. The, again, that is consecration. I'll give my all and then receive back from, in this case, Moses, the materials I will need to be able to do God's work. It's an amazing, amazing system. And in fact, once it gets going, no wonder they find it so easy to continue contributing. It's like, I see what my contributions are, are bringing about. That's amazing. And I think once we notice, you mean my fast offerings are helping to feed the world? Wow. I, makes me want to be more generous. You mean my tithing funds are going to build these temples all around the world to save the living and the dead. My contributions to the missionary fund are helping people who are willing but not financially able to go bless the world with the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wow, when I see people consecrating or doing with the consecration all that God is asking, no wonder I want to continue contributing myself. And so did they. Verse 5, so much was being offered that the workers, the ones that were receiving this to go work with, finally had to say to Moses, we're good. We, we can't, uh, the, 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 the supply has outdistanced demand. And, and so I think, I think we're, we're good. The, the Lord's storehouse is full to overflowing. He says, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work, which the Lord commanded to make. Now, this is a great problem to have when Moses has to tell people, um, yeah, we're, we're full. We're no longer taking donations. Okay. Verse six and seven. So the people were restrained from bringing for the stuff they had was sufficient for all the work to make it and too much. 
<laughs> yeah, there's being over generous. Now, it's not running faster than they have strength. That can be a problem. That's what King Benjamin warned us about. But in terms of just a desire to give and give and give some more, I can do this. I have enough and to spare. And so I am trying to contribute. And, and they gave even more than, than the Lord's storehouse can handle. That's incredible to me. Honestly, chapter 35 and 36 of Exodus is what the law of consecration at its best ought to look like. And then the rest of this chapter, he describes the construction, now that they have it all, willing and wise, and it's all moving forward in the work. Exodus 37 then describes the construction of everything inside the tabernacle. Ark of the Covenant, mercy seat, table of showbread, candlestick, incense altar, anointing oil, incense. And then chapter 38 describes the construction of everything outside the tabernacle. The altar of sacrifice and the laver were the most important things out there. But a few details in 38 worth focusing on. Verse 8 speaks of the laver, that washing station, right before you go into the, the tabernacle itself. We would look at it and consider it a baptismal font. It's not exactly what it was, but we're getting closer and closer to that. Well, it says that he made the laver of brass, and the foot of it of brass, would have been bronze, to be honest, but he made it of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Now, I love that description. There's a detail there that we didn't see last week when the description of the laver was given them. It was explain what it was supposed to look like and make it out of bronze. The King James keeps saying brass. But it didn't say where they were going to get it. Now, again, we're plundering the riches of Egypt, right? We're not supposed to make golden calves with it. We're supposed to make tabernacle furnishings with it. And now they're going to do it. But specifically, what did they use to make the laver? They melted down their mirrors. It was the looking glasses of the women. And they were assembling at the door of the tabernacle. Can you picture them just showing up every morning? How can we help? What can we do? Uh, is there more weaving? I, I, I'm really good with goat's hair, right? And, and anything they can contribute. And what could they contribute? Well, we could use some bronze. We need to build, we need to melt it down and forge it into this, this laver. Well, where are we going to come up with bronze? Oh, I know. My looking glass. Now, this is not a mirror like we would be used to in our day. Okay? In the ancient world, mirrors were often just very well uh, burnished metal. You wouldn't exactly see what you looked like, uh, but close enough, I guess. Uh, and among the more wealthy Egyptians, there would have been women that had these bronze looking glasses, these mirrors. And when the Israelites plundered the riches of Egypt and brought out those treasures, that was among them. I imagine these people that had been slaves their whole lives were amazed. I can actually look at myself. Remember we talked about the break off your earrings that they, they were told to be able to melt it down for other things. And they were using them as ornaments. I mean, again, slaves that just struck it rich, so to speak. Yeah, I can picture them wearing it. It's like I saw my masters wearing them all the time and never had the same luxury. Well, to look at yourself, to see yourself in a mirror, I'm willing to sacrifice that too. And to me, there's something beautifully symbolic here of what's getting in the way of my sacrifice? Is it too much of a focus on myself? Am I trying to see my own image all the time? Or am I looking for ways to receive God's image in my countenance? If it takes a melting down of my mirror 
to get out of God's way, to stop looking at myself and just, here, take this. I don't need to see me. I want to see him. In fact, it's going to be a laver. We'll fill it with water. I would much rather see my own reflection through the living water and be cleansed by Christ so that I'm actually worth looking at in the first place. There, something magnificently symbolic in all of this. I just, I love it. It reminds me of being in the temple, in the ceiling room, where there are looking glasses, where there are beautiful mirrors that face each other to give us this symbol of eternity. That I can look at it and see all the way forward to the latest generation and all the way back to all my posterity who came before. But if you've noticed when you're looking at it, the one thing that always seems to get in your own way is your own self. It's your reflection. I've, I've learned that when you're standing there next to your spouse, for example, like example, when you're sealed, if you look at yourself, you can only see one reflection. If you look at your spouse, you can see her or him all the way down. In my case, it's a much better view also. Poor her. She has to look at me all the way down. But that's the point of a ceiling. That if I can focus on my companion instead of myself. I mean, we did just get up from the altar after all. That should drop some hints that I'm, I'm laying something on the altar. I'm sacrificing it. I'm giving it up. And what did I lay on it? Oh, me. I knelt right there. I no longer exist. It's all about you. And your spouse is saying the same thing. Your needs will be met, just not by you, by your partner. And again, as you rise and look at each other in the mirror, when I see her, I see eternity. When I focus on myself, I get in the way of my own eternal purpose and promise. So we have to overcome that selfless selfishness. And that's what these women are, are gathering at the door of the tabernacle to do. Lining up to make these kinds of sacrifices. I don't care what I look like. Let's, let's make sure that the house of God looks absolutely breathtaking. In verse 21, this is the sum of the tabernacle, even of the tabernacle of testimony, as it was counted according to the commandment of Moses for the service of the Levites. You see, they've, they've done it. They've performed all of this work. And here's the sum. And if there's ever been an example of, of the total surpassing the sum of its parts, it's this. I mean, go figure. It's all of this synergy from these incredible saints and coming together to give the sum. Oh, the Lord will add some increase, an infinite increase. In verse 22, Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, made all that the Lord commanded Moses. And with him was Aholiab, son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, an engraver, a cunning workman, an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. Yes, Bezalel was ultimately responsible. Sounds like Aholiab has this incredible set of skills. And then from there, find anyone else that has any skill sets to contribute also. I think in some ways it's fitting that Bezalel would come from Judah, which is this, this, the tribe of political rulership. And that he would look to someone from the tribe of Dan, which was often seen as, I mean, this Dan came from one of the, the handmaids in, in Jacob's family. This was a lesser tribe, off in the distance, way up north once they get to the promised land. And yet for a Judah to look to someone from the tribe of Dan, no matter who you think 
is most qualified. Turn to the Lord and he might show you someone and open your eyes to a skill set that you've never recognized in someone that probably you would have overlooked without God's help. That seems to be what's happening here. In verse 24, all the gold that was occupied for the work in all the work of the holy place, even the gold of the offering was 29 talents and 730 shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. Now, 29 talents and 730 shekels of gold. Weights and measures are notoriously difficult to, to pin down from the ancient world. Uh, exactly what are you referring to here? But there are many who have suggested, as they've done the math, that the amount of gold described in verse 24 amounts to 2,193 pounds. This is over a ton of gold. Yeah, they plundered the riches of Egypt. It was just our earrings that we're going to give to make this little golden calf. We'll have plenty left over. Uh, careful. Remember, we talked last week. But a ton of gold, oh, it's worth it. Give it to God. See what he does with it. In verse 25, what about the silver? The silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was an hundred talents and a thousand seven hundred and three score and fifteen shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. hundred talents and seventeen hundred and seventy-five shekels. That math comes out to 7,545 pounds of silver. That's almost four tons. Give it to God. The gold, the silver, the brass, that is the bronze, all used to build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. And it's done. Chapter 39 then describes the making of the priesthood garments for Aaron and his sons. But a few details we missed in the spiritual design. Verse 2, he made the ephod of gold, blue, and purple, and scarlet, and fine-twined linen. Okay, we had that from last week. But they beat the gold into thin plates and cut it into wires to work it in the blue and the purple and the scarlet and in the fine linen with cunning work. That's amazing to me. That explains how this ephod was made, not only with blue and scarlet and purple, but with gold. Because how do you make gold-colored thread in the ancient world? I don't know. It wasn't gold-colored thread at all. It was gold thread. <laughs> to beat it down into just the thinnest of plates, to cut it into the smallest of strips, somehow to make wire out of it as narrow as possible, and then to weave it in. This is golden thread. That's amazing. Yes, a curious ephod. It was described earlier. But are we weaving gold into the fabric of our faith? Are we taking something so precious and rare and resilient, immune to rust, and all of these other elements too, the, the blue of, of heaven, the purple of royalty, the scarlet of blood, but weave gold into it and fashion the fabric of faith. Now the rest of this chapter then describes everything else they had to sew and embroider as far as the priestly garments were concerned. And then verse 32, thus was all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation finished. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so did they. And they brought the tabernacle unto Moses. Now again, Moses is the Christ figure here, the type and shadow. And here they are bringing all that they've done to him, to lay it before him, saying, Moses, we've done all that you commanded us to do. Here we are returning and reporting 
Our phase of creation is now complete. Will you accept it? Is it, is it acceptable to thee? And then to see Moses, what, put it all together. Of course, with help, obviously. But it reminds me of a temple dedication where you have a, an apostle or a member of the first presidency. This ceremonial mortar that you put into that final stone. And it involved usually some kids from the surrounding uh, community. Come and help. And from high to low, from prophet, prophet to the youngest child, all contributing their, their best to the work of God. Verse 33 to 41 summarizes everything they've done. Again, this return and report. And then the chapter ends, 42 and 43. According to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so the children of Israel made all the work. And Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. Even so had they done it, and Moses blessed them. Does that sound familiar, by the way, that order of things? It was all spiritually designed first. Here's how it needs to look. And then they actually went to work. He said, this is what it should be, and then it was. And then he looked at those things and saw all that was accomplished, recognized its beauty, its glory, accepted it, blessed it. Sound like creation? Hugh Nibley, in his great book, Temple and Cosmos, there's some overlap between those two. Temple is cosmos. It's a scale model of the universe right here among us. And so no wonder there are some parallels between the creation of the heaven and earth in Genesis 1 and the creation of this little heaven on earth in the book of Exodus, this tabernacle, this dwelling place for God and a meeting place where God and his children can come together and become truly one in the work. He said, and it was, and he looked and pronounced it good and has been blessing us ever since. It's exactly what Moses is doing here. The book of Exodus then comes to an end in chapter 40 as they set it all up. It's all been laid at Moses' feet. It's like, okay, awesome. Let's do this then. Let's, it's all ready. Now let's put it all together and begin the real work. In verse 1, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month shalt thou set up the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation. Perfect timing. First day, first month, yes, having a temple among us, the presence of God among us will be a new day, a new year, a new beginning, a clean slate. And to be able to go into the house of the Lord, to see the new beginnings he offers us every day, not just on January 1st in our case, or their equivalent back then. Oh, are we born again with a new start? In verse 3, thou shalt put therein, and then here's another great summary, the ark of the testimony. Amazing? It starts there. Okay? This is seeing the end from the beginning. This is the epicenter of righteousness and holiness that will then flow out. So start with the ark of the testimony. Cover the ark with the veil and then radiate out from there. Thou shalt bring in the table and set in order the things that are to be set in order upon it. Thou shalt bring in the candlestick and light the lamps thereof. Next, thou shalt set the altar of gold for the incense before the ark of the testimony and put the hanging of the door to the tabernacle. 
and thou shalt set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of the congregation, and thou shalt set the laver between the tent of the congregation and the altar, and shalt put water therein. And thou shalt set up the court round about, and hang up the hanging at the court gate. Oh, are we ready to set up camp? Camp has been here for a long time. But to set the center of the camp, out from which all of Israel will radiate, this will become our temple square, tabernacle square, as they would have called it, now with all of Israel surrounding it, the focus of their lives right there in the center. They then anoint everything with oil. They hallow it. They, they sanctify it. They then bring Aaron and his sons to the door of the tabernacle where they are washed and anointed and clothed, initiated in to the work of the Lord that they would then proceed to perform. In verse 18, and Moses reared up the tabernacle. Of course, not by himself, right? They get the little kids over here and help them put some mortar in the, in the cracks as well. And then by the end of the chapter, 34, a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses, Moses himself, he was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Yes, yeah, sorry, Moses, but it's not your house. It was never intended to be. And I know you know that. You're the meekest of all men. This is my house and I'm going to go into it first. Okay? Don't worry. Others will eventually join me there. But to see the glory of the Lord fill the house of the Lord, it is His, after all. We carve that in stone on the outside, too. In verse 36, when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not till the day that it was taken up. Now, this is looking back in retrospect. They're going to stay here for a while, okay? But from that moment forward, when did the camp of Israel move? Only when the Lord moved. And when did the camp of Israel stay? When the Lord decided to stay. He is our guide toward the promised land. He knows just how fast to move the camp and just how long we need sometimes to stay and, and rest and recover. There's an, to me, there's an interesting connection here when you get to the story of Ruth, where Ruth is not of the same people as Naomi, but wants to be. I would rather be your people than my people. So can I come? Can I become one of you, a member of the house of Israel? And the way she puts it, very famous verse, she says, whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Now, that's exactly what Israel is saying to the Lord here. Wherever the Ark of the Covenant, well, back up one, wherever the pillar of fire and cloud of smoke, where, whither it will go, the tabernacle will go, and the house of Israel will follow. And, whether, and wherever it will lodge, whenever it stays, then we'll stay. And again, if this is Ruth, a foreigner, wanting to truly join the people of Naomi, picture the house of Israel feeling a little foreign from God himself, are we, can we really be like him? Can we really belong to him? Yes, he said he wanted a holy nation, a peculiar people, a kingdom of priests and priestesses. 
can we, can we come? This is true conversion they're seeking, and I will go wherever the Lord takes me. And I'll stay wherever the Lord wants me to stay. And that's how we end the book of Exodus. This is a masterpiece scripture. In some ways, perhaps only second, second only to Genesis. No wonder we've spent so much time in these two books. But where did we begin in Exodus? Forty chapters ago, it was a people feeling forgotten as they found themselves in the house of bondage. How are they feeling now? Feeling remembered as they've now built a house of deliverance to the deliverer himself. Oh, to watch all of this proceed through this incredible book of Scripture. This is the story of deliverance. And it's a story that still is meant to resonate within each one of us. I love the book of Exodus. It is our endowment in a nutshell. It is our creation, our fall, our atonement. And it ends with the house of God, a fitting capstone to all that we've studied thus far. Now, we can't end with Exodus. I said at the beginning of today, we, our focus was going to be on the book of Leviticus, and so it is. Far beyond the three chapters that the curriculum suggests that we study. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the book of Leviticus is the church handbook of instructions for ancient Israel. Or if you remember getting a priesthood manual, uh, well, think of it this, especially you brethren, when you first received the Melchizedek priesthood and, and felt like, wow, this is amazing. I can speak and, and function in, in the name of God. And then it hit you. I have no idea how to do that. Or any of us, male or female, getting a new calling or being called on a mission. And once the euphoria of the call kind of settles in uh, and, and now it's time to actually get to work, then we get confused and we're like, uh, I don't know how to do any of these things. I have the, the willingness, not the wisdom. Any help? Well, that's where the, the book of Leviticus comes in. I remember my first year in Tennessee running the institute program in Nashville. And we would have three meetings, three kind of conventions every year for training, where all of the institute direct directors throughout the southeast United States would come together. And they do the, the similar things around the world. But uh, there were, we have a threefold mission within church education, which is to live the gospel first and foremost. We, we better be doing that or we'll be no help to anybody. Second is to teach effectively. That's our bread and butter. We've got to be raising the, or helping to raise the, next, the rising generation with the true word of God. And the third is to administer appropriately. Because yes, there, there are budgets to consider and, and buildings to build, to construct, and, and the, the work of it all. Okay? Administration is a necessary evil. Uh, you administrators probably feel the same. Uh, but to do those three. And so our three conventions would follow those three responsibilities. One, our focus was on, are we really living the gospel? Are we teaching powerfully? And are we administering the program in the way the Lord would have us do it? Um, can any guesses on which, uh, which people preferred? Everybody's favorite training was, was live the gospel. Because we just got to study and learn, and, and it was amazing. The second favorite was teaching. We all love to do that. That's what brought us into this profession. And even the most obvious was what the least favorite convention of the year. Yeah, we got to go to learn to administer. Yikes. We're going to have to have meetings about budgets and, and facilities management and all that kind of, okay, well, yeah, necessary evil indeed. Well, I remember my first year being so excited for that <laughs> least, of, least favorite of the three 
And I remember showing up and everyone's kind of grumbling like, well, good to be together and see each other and kind of compare notes. That's always nice, but uh, this one. And I remember going, what do you mean this one? I just got to Nashville. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have the most willing heart you could ask for, but wisdom, uh-uh. Uh, I don't have the wise heart yet and I want to get there. And so I am so glad somebody's going to explain to me how to budget and how to manage a program and how to run all of these things and how to do the paperwork and the reporting and, and the computer systems and the software that we're supposed to master. I could use some of this. And so again, don't look down your nose at the book of Leviticus. And don't look down your nose at the church handbook of instructions or any manuals that you get when, it, when you get a, receive a new calling. Because when the rubber hits the road, you got to know what you're doing. And to help not only our commitment, but our qualifications, our competence. Oh, the, the priests of Israel especially would have loved the book of Leviticus because it tells them what to do. I hope we come to love it as well as it points us away from things that might be less relevant to something that for us is of the ultimate relevance. And that's the atonement of Jesus Christ. As we plow through Leviticus, the next 27 chapters, brief with each one, I pray that we'll come to see them through the lens that Amulek gives us in the Book of Mormon. In Alma 34, verse 14, he said, Behold, this is the whole meaning of the law. Every wit, every tiny detail, every wit pointing to that great and last sacrifice. And that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, yea, infinite and eternal. You take something as small as a wit, okay, those, the pins that we saw that need to fasten everything, all the curtains together in the tabernacle court, and then end it with something as grand and glorious as the infinite and eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Oh yes, we need to look at every detail we can with an eye to see the atonement. If we have those eyes to see, those symbolism glasses on, then superimposed over the word symbol will also be an image of the Savior, knowing that what we're looking at really is Him as soon as we have the eyes to see. So let's see. Leviticus 1 explains how burnt offerings are to be performed. Let's start with that one. Since that's the offering, there's burnt offerings, sin offerings, trespass offerings, heave offerings, wave offerings, uh, meat offerings. There's a lot of offerings, and we'll see them all in the book of Leviticus. But let's start with the one that's most important to God. Because it's all going to him. A burnt offering is completely consumed. Let's give the entire, this is our consecration, our whole souls to him. And just like we start with uh, the Ark of the Covenant and then work out from there, let's start with burnt offerings and then work out from there as well. Verse 1, the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation. Sound like the Lord calling to Adam and Eve from the midst of the Garden of Eden? Same thing happening here. And what did God command them to do? To offer sacrifice. Exact what's happening. The Lord says, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. Verse 3, If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Now put your symbolism glasses on. We saw some of this in Exodus, but see it again in Leviticus. And what, is, what are we supposed to understand by this? Here's your burnt offering. Let him offer a male 
there's Son of God. Without blemish, there's sinless Son of God. He shall offer it of his own voluntary will. No man taketh my life from me, the Lord said. He laid it up of his own accord. So offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. It's as close as you're going to go. From that point forward, the priests will take your sacrifice to God. But the offerer, verse 4, shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. This is true substitutionary sacrifice. This is a vicarious offering, and I am laying my hands upon the head of this sacrificial animal and taking my sinfulness and transferring it to him. We saw all of those, oh, the Christian collateral, I think we called it, and the story of Joseph with with Reuben willing to take the place, and Simeon willing to take the place, and Judah willing to take the place. Well, here's the ultimate Judah. Here is Jesus willing to take the place of each of us. He will be our lamb without blemish. He will be the ram in the thicket. He will be the bullock, the offering, the beast of burden whose shoulders are broad enough and whose back is strong enough to bear up under the weight of the world. And so we lay our hands in token upon that sacred head. And we add to his burden. We ask him to replace us as a Barabbas was replaced on the cross by Christ. As Joseph of Arimathea was replaced in the tomb by Jesus. As the, the dirt on the apostles' feet was transferred from their feet to the towel wherewith Jesus himself was girded. He began to wear and to bear the dirt that they had picked up in their worldly wanderings. He's done the same for each of us. And so, to place it upon this offering, ready to give it all to God. Now, as I mentioned, the burnt offering, and burnt, the, the Hebrew speaks less of, of fire and more of smoke. Because the word here that's used as burnt offering speaks more of ascending to God. There's something powerful there. Because what does burning something do? It elevates things because it turns, oh, solid into gas, right? It turns it into smoke. And smoke and ash are able to ascend, able to go up to God. And so in this burnt offering, this is what we're doing. We're trying to give God something. We're, delivering, we're keeping the first great commandment, loving him. And vertically, yes, we're sending things in that direction. In verse 11, he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar. Now, we already saw some sprinkling of blood on the altar back in Exodus. Here we get an added detail, though, that the animal is supposed to be killed on the north of the altar. That's an interesting detail. If you've been to the Holy Land and you see sacred sites in every direction, you've probably noticed that Catholicism and Protestantism still can't get along. They've fought 
theologically over the centuries. Well, in Jerusalem, they're still fighting geographically because they can't agree on exactly where these sacred sites are supposed to be. If you're in Catholicism, for example, it's all about the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. In Protestantism, it's all about the Garden Tomb. Personally, I love both sides of the family. Okay, So here I am trying to prove contraries and enjoy both geographies. Well, you know, as far as Protestantism is concerned, where Golgotha would have been, this, the hill of the skull, place of Calvary, is just outside Damascus Gate, uh, outside the old city of Jerusalem. And Damascus Gate is the gate on the north of the city. So, hmm, that Calvary, that Golgotha, is north of the altar, so to speak. But notice also in verse 11, who kills the animal? I think growing up, I always assumed it was always the priests that did it. But he shall kill it is still referring back to the owner of the animal. The offerer of the offering. Wait a minute. I have to be part of this death? Now, if you grew up in a time before oh, when butchers would do all of the butchery, uh, and if you had to, to kill your own animals, then, then this kind of, of function would have been a little bit more normal, a little more comfortable for people. Okay? We are so far removed from the food we eat we're so far removed from, from death and suffering in so many ways that this seems incredibly foreign. For them, it would be less so. But still, to be personally involved in the death of the animal that you just laid your hands on, that you transferred your sins to, ah, that makes more sense now. I'm responsible for this. Way too much anti-Semitism throughout history has been chalked up to the thought that, oh, well, the, G the Jews crucified Jesus. Oh, careful there. Because for whom was he crucified? For all of us. And so who's to blame? I am as much as anyone else. And so it's my hands on his head and it's my hands... I don't even know if I can finish this, this statement... But if I'm responsible for the death of Jesus, if it's President Faust's beautiful words, how many drops were shed for me? Because it's my fault. He did it for me. For God so loved the world, including little old me, he gave his only begotten son. And Christ so loved each of us that he was willing to suffer at our hands which is what happens when I think, when I hear the priests pronounce the blessing on the water every Sunday in the sacrament, the words that stand out most to me are when they say, they pray that, these, that this water might be blessed and sanctified for the souls of all those who partake of it. That it represents the blood that was shed for them. And that's the phrase that always strikes me. Do it in remembrance of the blood of thy son, which was shed for them. And in fact, change that pronoun to make it even more personal. The blood of thy son, which was shed for me. Sometimes I even look, this might be overthinking, but for me there are times I look at the tray and try to find the fullest cup, knowing what I have contributed to the bitter cup of Christ. This has to be personal. In ancient Israel, it was personal for the offerer. 
And in Gethsemane and on Calvary, it was personal for the offering as well. We see the same in verse 12. He, the offerer, shall cut it, the offering, into his pieces. With his head, his fat, the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. So yes, the priest does come in to arrange things. I've caused the problems. I can't fix them all myself. I do have to turn to a higher source of grace to be able to be healed from my own self-inflicted wounds. Now, in this chapter, we see it could be a bullock. It could be a sheep or a goat. It could be a pair of turtle doves or of pigeons. It all was based on how much the offerer had to give. And depending on their own oh, wealth, their own property, give as much as you can. But what is the widow's might in some circumstances? In this case, a pair of turtle doves, a, a pair of pigeons. And if it ended up being birds, notice verse 16. This is how it was supposed to be performed. He, the priest, shall pluck away his crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part by the place of the ashes. So something very specific being done with the feathers uh, of this burnt offering when it happens to be a bird. Now, this is an experience I had years ago when I was preparing to teach Leviticus for the first time in seminary, I believe. And I just, I had Amulek haunting me. He kept whispering in my ear, every wit points forward to the great and last sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I'm like, well, really? Every wit? Can I just focus on the wits that I, I actually understand? Uh, can we talk about son or male without blemish and blood? That's, that's pretty simple, straightforward. That, that I can handle. But I remember for some reason with that one particularly, this was a burning bush. I did turn aside to see and I wondered, what's up with this, this bird sacrifice? Is there, is there anything behind these wits, these tiny uh, details that might point me forward? And I just felt... Oh, kind of, hold on, stay here, Jared, stay here. Don't run forward, think, ponder, pray. What might this mean? And I remember pondering hard about birds and about feathers. And, and in that particular verse, verse 16, the three things that stood out were feathers and ashes and the east side of the altar. And I tucked those away in my mind and just thought, I want, okay, what do feathers represent? We'll see more about birds in a moment uh, in chapter uh, 14, we'll get there. But as I was pondering birds and pondering ashes and pondering east, I couldn't come up with anything. I just kept racking my brain and nothing was coming. But I just felt like, well, just keep reading. It'll come. I think too often, if we, we need to turn aside to see, that's good. But if we take that to the extreme, and I will not move forward until everything makes sense to me, well, good luck. Uh, you'll never get through the scriptures. Uh, and good luck, you'll never go home after that first temple experience. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said in 3517. I know you're overwhelmed. You've been drinking from the fire hose for the last five chapters. Six chapters, I believe. Uh, go home is the first thing he says. And then ponder upon these things and, and pray about them and prepare yourself for the morrow. And then come back because there's more to learn. But let's pause for a moment. Well, in this case, I was, again, getting a Levitical headache. Like, I don't understand why he had to do it this way. Just keep reading that. It's fine. And line upon line, precept upon precept, more insight will come. That has served me well with my temple worship. And an insight here and an insight there. And over the last, what, 25 years uh, plus of temple worship, just 
an insight here and an insight there. Well, in this case, it was ironic because I kept it filed away. It had struck me hard enough that I remembered those details. Uh, and it's a good thing because when I finally found a clue to help un unravel them, then it came, it was a long time in coming. I'll put it that way. It was the very last page of the Old Testament. <laughs> God has a good sense of humor. But as I was wrapping up that year uh, in seminary and studying Malachi chapter 4, I noticed these verses at the beginning. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Now, I usually always thought of that verse, oh, root, branch, that's the tree of the family tree. And no wonder Malachi 4 ends with hearts of fathers and children turning to each other. Okay, nice. But for this, that time through, thinking of burning and stubble, and I, I pictured ash. Okay, and then keep reading, verse 2. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise. Now that's Son, S-U-N, but it's capital S. So what kind of Son are we talking about? Oh, the Son of Righteousness. This sounds like the light of the world. This sounds like the Son of God. And it's arising? Well, where does the Son rise from? Ah, from the east. And this Son of Righteousness arises with what? With healing in his wings. And all of a sudden, it all clicked. With the feathers on the east side of the altar, along with the ashes of the sacrifice. And I'm sure there are more layers yet to be peeled away and yet and insights yet to be revealed. But I just remember as a young, inexperienced seminary teacher feeling so grateful that God would someday, eventually, open my eyes to see something in a few small wits of this sacrificial offering that did indeed help me see Jesus. Hen with wings outstretched, arms of Jesus, ever merciful, ready to embrace us, to keep us from the ash as he arises with healing in his wings. Oh, there's beautiful, beautiful things here. And I pray you'll have the patience to keep pondering, pondering scripture, pondering temple, pondering the lessons the Lord is trying to teach us. Now, burnt offerings in chapter 1 shift to grain offerings in chapter 2. Now, they're called meat offerings here. And you see in the first few verses, when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord. Now, other translations would say a grain offering. And that's more true to what's happening here. His offering shall be of fine flour. Well, every wit pointing, keep your symbolism glasses on. What's fine flour? Oh, this is good wheat. It's not tares. It's not chaff. It's finely ground down. You shall pour oil upon it. Oil, there's Gethsemane, the olive press. Put frankincense thereon. Oh, there's one of the things they put in the incense altar. Prayers of the saints. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take thereof his handful of the flour thereof, and of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar, to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. 
Meanwhile, the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. So you understand the difference there? They're offering flour and oil and frankincense. And they're giving it to God. Well, they're giving it to the priest to give to God. Now, the priest will take a handful of the, the, the flour and oil and take all of the frankincense and put all of that on the altar. This is the token offering to God. It all belongs to him. But he is willing to give us a portion. In fact, he's willing to give us the greater portion. He's only asking for a handful of all that's been given. Give him that handful. Might as well give him all of the frankincense since we can't eat that ourselves. That, there's that sweet savor to God. Okay? Ascending smoke to heaven. And what's left of this sacrifice? The remainder of the flour and oil is what the priests will be able to eat. Oh, we need to be omnivores, not strictly carnivores. And so if we're only eating burnt sacrifice, uh, even I can get tired of barbecue after a time. Uh, and so the priests, yes, will consume part of the, the offerings of meat. Not the burnt offering, that's all to God. But other offerings, part, uh, the priest will eat part of the meat, and here they will also partake of the grain which is a, a better diet here. When we talk about the first fruits of the field and of the harvest in those festivals that we'll see uh, later today and that we saw last week, those are also, allowed, it allows the priests to have a well-balanced diet, like everybody else gets to have, okay? But since the priests don't have land of their own to grow their crops on, they're here to serve everyone else in the spiritual vein, then I'll help you spiritually, you can help me temporally, and everything's being consecrated here, okay? So that's what's happening. There is a, obviously a spiritual purpose is first and foremost. All things are spiritual unto me, including the temporal, the Lord says in Doctrine and Covenants 29. Uh, the first and the, the priority here is the spiritual purpose. But yes, there is a, a practical purpose, and that's to feed the priests. Now, some of these grain offerings are going to be cakes, some are wafers, some are baked on griddles, some in frying pans. Uh, he describes them all in Leviticus chapter 2. But the, the common denominator, the rule that all of them have to follow, is in verse 11. No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. For ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. And remember, leaven, as we saw with the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, can represent sin because that yeast leads to mold and decay of the bread. So we've got to eliminate it. So if you're going to give something to God, make sure that it's a worthy offering, that it reflects the worthiness you see in Him. I want to give Him my absolute best, the firstling of the flock, no blemish, no leaven, and even no honey. That one I'm still kind of waiting for further light and knowledge. But I do wonder, are there things about... Well, like with most symbols, is, is this meant to be a negative or a positive? Just like leaven could be both. If it's a negative symbol, then it could be the kinds of sweet things that we're not supposed to indulge in in life. Put sweet in quotation marks there. Okay? It's got a bitter aftertaste, that's for sure. Sin always does. So don't give that to the Lord. On the other hand, if honey is a positive symbol... Since the Lord speaks of the, of the promised land being a land flowing with milk and honey, 
Perhaps this, again, is God's generosity, saying, oh, you can keep all the honey for yourself. I'm okay. I don't need it. Give me your handful and keep the greater portion. Give me your tenth and you will have the 90% for yourself, even though, yes, technically it all belongs to me. Amazing what they're trying to be, what the Lord's trying to teach them here, what he's trying to teach all of us, okay? And again, as we're pondering symbolism, think of everything you know about those substances, those symbols. Think of any time that they're brought up in Scripture and what they might represent. Allow for multiple interpretations. Again, the key to understanding symbolism is don't lock yourself down to a single thing, and certainly don't allow your thoughts of a symbol to lead you in some path that's illogical or, or goes against things you already know to be true. That, that's when you know you're doing the wrong thing, okay? And thinking, using the wrong uh, element in the object to symbolize. I've often said that symbolism is never meant to teach us something brand new. Joseph Smith actually taught that. Parables don't teach new doctrine because it's too confusing. If it's new, the Lord will always make sure he clar clarifies it elsewhere to make sure you get it, okay? And that's the power of symbolism. Not to teach new doctrine, but to deepen our understanding of and appreciation for existing doctrine that he has taught much more clearly elsewhere. You need a Nephi to be clear, and then you need an Isaiah to infuse it with power and, and meaning, okay? Uh, powerful things here. Last verse to, to see in chapter 2, verse 13. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. Now, if you just want to stick with the, the practical, then I'm sure the priests were grateful that their food was being salted. But also if you're focusing on the spiritual, the metaphorical, ye are the salt of the world. Yes, the light of the world, but also the salt of the earth. And because you're the salt of the earth, what was salt for? Yes, for flavoring, but also for preservation. So are we leavening the lump? Are we salting the earth? Are we giving sweet savor to God? And are we preserving our fellow man and woman by crying repentance and by setting a positive example? These offerings were meant to symbolize all of that. Now, Leviticus chapter 3, we've seen burnt offerings, meat offerings, a.k.a. grain offerings, and now peace offerings. And a peace offering is sometimes elsewhere described or translated as a fellowship offering. We're trying to establish peace horizontally. Every offering is establishing vertical peace. Am I good with God? But the peace offering is trying to establish horizontal peace and to reconcile us with our neighbors Reconcile is a great word. It's one of those atonement words. And reconciliation is to re, again, counsel, counsel. To reconcile is to bring us back into the council, back into harmony with one another. And so Leviticus 3 helps us develop that kind of fellowship. If you think about the sacrament, we call it the sacrament in other, our church. Other churches call it communion that's community. That's coming together. It was originally a meal. And that's a great way to establish community too. Let's eat together. And that's what's happening here. It is this meal, this festive meal, the, the food is being offered. This is like a potluck in ancient Israel, okay? <laughs> this is, uh, we come by our, our ward potlucks honestly. We're, we're trying to live Leviticus 3 in our own lives. But who's participating? 
the priests are get are eating. Some of it is being offered direct smoke to heaven. There's the vertical contribution. God is participating in the meal with us. And part of it, too, is the offerer. And anyone they bring, this is a chance to gather your family, your friends, your neighbors, and come to the tabernacle and invite the priests and the Lord himself to share in the festivities, to share in the feast. Peace offerings were an amazing thing. And... And yes, since sin separates us from God and from other people, then reconciliation, atonement, forges those bonds once again. And I can connect with God, first great commandment, and connect with my neighbor, second great commandment. So, Leviticus 3 verse 1, If his oblation be a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offer it of the herd, whether it be a male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. Ah, finally. We see offerings can be from female sheep and goats and so on, and not just from male. Now, the burnt offering, since that's most indicative of the atonement of Jesus Christ, yes, it has to be a male without blemish. But in terms of peace and reconciliation, of course, the female offering would be just as, as relevant, applicable, powerful, uh, effective as any male offering. Part of me wants to say it might even be more effective since it's been my experience that the people that do the better job of, of relationships and of community gathering often tend to be sisters. Uh, and so to see that, oh, the renewal of relationships, the feeling of fellowship, there seems to be something fitting in both male and female contributions here. Now, part of it's going to be for the Lord, the fat, the kidney, the livers. We saw the liver, <laughs> livers, that's just one. Uh, the, those would go to, the, to God. We saw that back in Exodus. In verse 11, the priest shall burn it upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire unto the Lord. So that's his. And then everything else is the food for the family, the friends, the priests, the people. This is a community celebration, honoring God for all that he has given them. Now, one last caution, though, he says in verse 17, that this would be a perpetual statute for your generations throughout all your dwellings, that ye eat neither fat nor blood. Now, specifically, this is the fat that's attached to those internal organs that are being given to God. There's different kinds of fat here. Uh, to have absolutely no fat in your diet is not only unhealthy, it's impossible. Okay? Uh, and so it's a specific kind here. But these things, this fat and, and all blood, belongs to the Lord. And yes, there's some, some, temp some temporal, some physical value here as far as health is concerned. What you're consuming and what you're not. We're going to see more of that later in Leviticus. But also the, the spiritual. Don't keep for yourself what is intended for God. And even if you don't know all the specific reasons, why, fat, not, why that fat and not this, and why blood in general, well, just trust God that he's asking for certain things. That tenth is mine. That handful belongs to me. I'm Be grateful for the greater portion that I'm, that I'm allowing you to fully live into. But these will be sacred. Well, chapter 4, now we go to sin offerings. We're working our way through the different kind of sacrificial offerings. And in chapter 4, verse 2, if a soul shall sin through ignorance, 
And that's, there's a difference here. We'll see often in Leviticus, did people mean to commit this sin or not? Is this willful sin or sin in ignorance? This case, it's ignorance. And if they sin in ignorance against any of the commandments of the Lord concerning things which ought not to be done and shall do against any of them, and from there he begins walking them through how to make these sin offerings. Now, before we go on to get some of those details, it's interesting that even ignorant sin needs to be atoned for. Now, we'll see in the New Testament and in the Book of Mormon, and common sense would suggest it, there's a different level of guilt when you didn't know you were doing anything wrong. Okay? But there's also something to realize that something wrong was done. I may be at, in a no-fault accident, and yes, there was no fault, but there's still damage done by that accident. Sometimes the damage is done to ourselves. We're punished by our sins, even if we don't have to be punished for them. I didn't know I was doing anything wrong. Okay, good. It still caused some, some problems. I didn't mean to lean on the, the burning stove. I didn't know. Well, my hand still burned. And there's a consequence to be paid. Or even the things that are, we do wrong to other people accidentally and unknowingly, well, there's still fallout from that. And one of the great blessings of the Atonement of Christ is it, it doesn't just solve the fall, it solves the fallout of every mistake, every error, every sin, every transgression, every accident, things we know and things we don't even know. And so sacrifice covered, the sacrifice of Christ covers all of that as well. His atonement allows him to understand all of us in whatever those circumstances might be. And so, yes, there needs to be offerings even for those things. Now, as we saw with peace offerings, sin offerings could also be either male or female. As we've seen elsewhere, guilty parties would lay their hands upon the head of the sacrifice. Substitutionary atonement, as always. The offerer would kill the offering, as we saw earlier. And then verse 6, the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle of the blood seven times before the Lord, before the veil of the sanctuary. And seven, as we learned in creation, is a great symbolic number for totality and completeness and wholeness. It's done. It's very good. Well, even in accidental sin, even in ignorant transgression, let me take the blood. It still costs Christ his life. He's atoning for everything and helping people navigate and through. This is this perfect empathy that he has. He can go through all of these things with you. But let me take that blood and sprinkle it before the altar seven times so that completeness, totality, it covers absolutely everything. He puts some of the blood upon the horns of the altar. As we saw some last week, some, sometimes it's on the altar of incense within the tabernacle. Sometimes it's on the horns of the altar of sacrifice outside the tabernacle. And all of this is spelled out here for the priests. I imagine they had needed a written copy of this until they really got the hang of it. It's like, wait, what, when do we do for this one? Is this inside, outside? Ah, let's go look. Reminds me of my first years in the Melchizedek priesthood and needing to look at everything. How do I do this? And when am I supposed to? Ah, glad that it's written down. Uh, we see the offering of fat, kidney, and liver to the Lord, as usual. And then verse 11 and 12, the skin of the bullock, all his flesh, with his head, with his legs, and his inwards, and his dung, even the whole bullock shall he carry forth without the camp unto a clean place, where the ashes are poured out. And burn him on the wood with fire, where the ashes are poured out, shall he be burnt. We talked about that a little bit last week, with skin could be 
are outward trappings. Flesh could be the inner natural man. Dung? Yeah, you know what that might symbolize. Let's remove all of that. Let's get all of our wickedness, all of our guilt, whether we did it on purpose or not, and remove that from the camp. Let's take it away from us. And then throughout the rest of chapter 4, he lists a bunch of possibilities as far as who the identities of the sinful parties might be. In verse 3, if the priest that is anointed do sin. Ah, so even priests are imperfect and require atonement? Yeah. Verse 13, if the whole congregation of Israel sin. Oh, collective guilt? Societal sin? Even things like cultural misdirection? Or the philosophies of men when we're all guilty, but we don't even know it because it's the air we breathe and the water we drink. Yep, that needs to be atoned for. Verse 22, when a ruler hath sinned. So yes, people in political authority. The ones that should be setting a better example, but sometimes fall short of that. They can be atoned for and must be. How about 27? If anyone of the common people sin. So we've gone from top to bottom. And everywhere in between, no matter who you are, all of us need to be covered by the atonement of Jesus Christ. And we are. Verse 35, the priest shall make an atonement for his sin that he hath committed, and it shall be forgiven him, which is the greatest blessing of all of these sacrificial rites. All of us, top to bottom, sin. But all of us, top to bottom, can be forgiven. Now, lest we think that it's just all about the sacrifice, all about the offering, there are things that must be done by the offerer as well. The book of Hebrews will do an amazing job of convincing former Hebrews, current Christians, that it never was just the blood of goats and oxen that, that covered our, our sins. It was the atonement of Jesus Christ and the broken heart and a contrite spirit, all those other sacrifices are meant to, to show in us, to give evidence of. And so in chapter 5 of Leviticus, you do see some more involvement on the part of us in terms of confession. Uh, we'll see confession and trespass offerings in chapter 5. Verse 1, if a soul sin and hear the voice of swearing and is a witness, whether he hath seen or known of it, if he do not utter it, then he shall bear his iniquity. If you know something about a case and you don't speak up, then you're guilty by association. This is obstruction of justice. You're getting in the way of, of the Lord's desire to teach and to change and to redeem the, the guilty party. And so your act of mercy, quote-unquote, doesn't end up being very merciful here. And so you need to get out of the Lord's way. In verse 2, if a soul touch anything, whether it be a carcass of an unclean beast or a carcass of unclean cattle or the carcass of unclean creeping things, and if it be hidden from him, so even if you didn't know that you were doing it, he also shall be unclean and guilty. Now this is ritual uncleanness, uh, ritual impurity. This is a good indication of the contagion of sin. Are we spreading it, knowingly or unknowingly? What is my involvement here? Again, what this chapter is trying to get us to do is to look a little bit more inward. It's not just animals that are being sacrificed. Am I party to someone else's sin? Is, am I spreading the contagion of iniquity? Uh, or am I participating in someone else's? How do I overcome that?
Verse 3 gives another example. If he touch the uncleanness of man, whatsoever uncleanness it be that a man shall be defiled withal, and it be hid from him, when he knoweth of it, then he shall be guilty. Now, is this making us think of Jesus and the leper, or Jesus and the woman with the issue of blood? Those are the male-female equivalents that we've talked about before, back with Easter, right? But to see this, that even if you don't know it, if the woman touches the hem of your garment and you didn't even feel virtue go out of you, never knew it happened. All those poor people that she was kind of pushing through the crowd, unbeknownst to them, she was defiling them from her own defiled position. No wonder she was scared to death to come forth when Jesus asked, who touched me? Yeah, oh, and then who touched everybody else along the way? No wonder she's so devastated to confess her sins. But this is what we're after in this chapter. To realize what we've done is wrong. To have it be made known unto us. We don't want to stay in our ignorant sin, since there are consequences of sin, even if done ignorantly and innocently. So, Father, please help me know what I'm doing is when I'm doing something wrong. Help me see into my blind spots. Shine light into the dark corners of my life so I can change. Since there will be consequences to me or to others if I don't make those changes. So here's confession, verse 5. It shall be when he shall be guilty in one of these things that he shall confess that he hath sinned in that thing. See, the power of confession, even when we've sinned, you see, a sin would suggest well, do you not agree with the Lord's standards? And if you sin and don't confess and don't change, then yes, there is a suggestion there that, no, I never intended to live that way anyway. But, but if you confess, then it's an admission, I fell short of a standard that I actually agree with. This wasn't rebellion. It was, it was sinfulness on my part. It was weakness I'm not fighting against the rule in strength. I'm falling down in the face of the rule out of weakness. But I agree with the rule. I, I want to live it. And again, that's part of the power of confession. It ends up reaffirming standards. Yes, standards that you broke, but standards you really do intend to uphold. No wonder the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenant says that true repentance is more than just forsaking sin. It's confessing it also. It's that reaffirmation of standard. I'm in agreement, even if I'm out of alignment. In verse 6, then, he shall bring his trespass offering unto the Lord for his sin which he hath sinned. And again, it could be a female, it could be a lamb or a kid, it could be a pair of turtle doves, it could be pigeons. They were killed, the blood was sprinkled on the altar. If you're unable to bring even birds, if you're, I mean, even the widow's mite was too much, then a measure of fine flour was sufficient for this. In verse 15, if a soul commit a trespass and sin through ignorance in the holy things of the Lord. So here we see a religious sin, not just a civil infraction. Then he shall bring for his trespass unto the Lord a ram without blemish out of the flocks. With thy estimation by shekels of silver after the shekel of the sanctuary for a trespass offering, and he shall make amends for the harm that he hath done in the holy thing, 
and shall add the fifth part thereto, and give it unto the priest, and the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. Interesting, the difference on this one. Yes, there needs to be a sacrifice. In this case, a ram. So there's the ram in the thicket. There's the substitute for Isaac upon the altar. Something more than the, the measure of flour or the turtle dove. This is a more significant sin and needs a more significant sacrifice. But in addition to the ram, there's also some money owed. Some shekels of silver. Okay, well, how much? Well, that's the problem. We don't know. It simply says in that verse, thy estimation. Well, what's your estimate? How much do you think you should, you should pay? Huh? Don't you have some kind of formula? Like, this is what I did, and you look across the chart and go, this is my punishment? Well, that would simplify things. It would speed up the judicial process for sure. But is that really doing right? Where are you on the spectrum between justice and mercy? How hard or soft are you of heart? And therefore, how hard or soft must the Lord be to strike the proper balance? And so what's your estimate here? Part of it's going to be what you feel, part of it perhaps what the priests feel, so you have some objectivity and some subjectivity involved. We saw a similar sacrifice uh, a few weeks ago. But to see that, whatever it is, you need to make amends for the harm done. And so the principle of restitution as part of our repentance. I find that, that went, this one a really fascinating one. And then one more thing in chapter 5, verse 17 if a soul sin and commit any of these things which are forbidden to be done by the commandments of the Lord, though he wist it not, in other words, though he knows it not, yet is he guilty and shall bear his iniquity. So we're back to what I said at the beginning, that harm is being done even if accidental. There are damages and somebody's going to have to pay for it. I always think of that when somebody, you know, spills something at a restaurant uh, or a clumsy a customer comes in and breaks something at the store and, ah, uh, do I have to pay for that? Well, if you don't, then somebody does. And the store typically is kind enough to want to keep their customers and says, oh, don't worry about it. Just please be more careful. Well, somebody has to pay. And in all cases, the Lord does and is willing to. And to see that spelled out here in Leviticus chapter 5 is important for us. The atonement covering both ignorant sin as well as intentional iniquity. Now, we saw earlier here this making of amends. Well, now we're going to get a whole chapter to focus on it. Chapter 6, let's make sure we're making restitution as part of our repentance. He starts with sins of dishonesty or deception, theft, ill-gotten gains, keeping lost items that don't belong to you. Verse 5, he says, He shall even restore it in the principle. So give back what you stole or what you hid or what you kept or what fell into your hands and shall add the fifth part more thereto and give it unto him to whom it appertaineth. So this is restitution plus. And that's important because if it's just restitution, then it's like, well, I guess it's a gamble, but it's a no risk gamble. Uh, sin is always a gamble, right? But if I get away with it, then I'm, I'm off the hook. And in this case, if it's just restitution, oh, you caught me with it. <laughs> okay, I'll have to be more careful next time. Here's your thing back. No hard feelings? We're good? Well, then it's, I'm not afraid to sin. But if there's a fifth part thereunto, there's some additional consequence. Okay, that might slow me down 
if I'm recklessly running towards some kind of sin of dishonesty. So there's some wisdom there. Then in verse 10 and 11, when it comes to burnt offerings, the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh. Take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar, and he shall put them beside the altar. And he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. It seems we keep getting line upon line, a few more added details to help our understanding of sacrifice. And what I like about this one is this idea of changing clothes. Yes, we are taking the sins away. We're taking the ashes and bringing them out of the camp. I don't want to have anything to do with them anymore. Give them over to God and let them go. But this idea of putting off your garments and then putting on new ones. When I repent, especially when I'm trying to make restitution, as chapter 6 emphasizes, am I changing for real? Am I laying aside the old natural man and trying to take on the man or woman of Christ? That seems to be what's suggested here. Uh, then verse 12, the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. It shall never go out. I'm so grateful that the cleansing fire of the atonement, that purifying power of Gethsemane and Calvary, is endless. It's eternal. It never goes out. The burning bush was a fire that never consumed its own fuel. And to see this kind of atoning sacrifice that never burns out, it always continues blazing, helping us become clean from the sins that we've committed. In verse 27, one last insight. Whatsoever shall touch the flesh thereof, of the offering that is, shall be holy. Now earlier we saw that, wait, if you touch something impure, you become impure. The contagion of sin. Yeah, it is. But did you know that righteousness is contagious too? We are constantly influencing those around us for good or ill. But I love this thought. If you touch the offering, then you're holy too. Now, since it works both ways, I guess that begs the question. If holiness and unholiness coincide, if they touch, who wins? Well, if you remember the stories, as I mentioned already, about the leper and the woman with the issue of blood, here is impurity personified, meeting purity personified, Jesus Christ. And Jesus chooses to touch the leper. Oh, you're not going to affect me. I will affect you. And though Jesus didn't choose to be touched by the woman with the issue of blood, he recognized it and wanted to make sure she recognized it, pronounced her whole in the, the sight of everyone around her and reassured her and them, therefore, what was contagious today was virtue, not uncleanness. You're all okay. You're not going to be unclean till the even. Okay, we're good here. Well, chapter 7 then, Leviticus, we need to provide more for those priests. Okay, how are we going to take care of them? And this clarifies it. Verse 7, whether it's sin offering or trespass offering, the priest that maketh atonement therewith shall have it. So that's how they're going to provide for themselves and their families. With burnt offerings, the priest shall have to himself the skin of the burnt offering which he hath offered. But that's it. Everything else goes to God. 
Uh, verse 9 and 10, all the meat offering that is bacon in the oven, all that is dressed in the frying pan and in the pan shall be the priests that offereth it. And every meat offering mingled with oil and dry shall all the sons of Aaron have one as much as another. Again, this is the practical element of sacrifice. This is the way the priests were provided for. Uh, Jesus himself says it in Luke chapter 10, the laborer is worthy of his hire. And that's how it takes place among the ancient Israelites. In verse 16, but if the sacrifice of his offering be a vow or a voluntary offering, it shall be eaten the same day that he offereth his sacrifice. On the morrow also the remainder of it shall be eaten, but the remainder of the flesh of the sacrifice on the third day shall be burnt with fire. So yes, the food of the offering is meant for you, priests and families, but be careful. Uh, you can eat it the day it's given. You can eat it the day after. There's some good leftovers, okay? But on the third day, no more. Now, again, that might be practical in terms of food safety and, and food handlers permits, right? Uh, and hygiene. And yeah, after a time, it's no longer safe for you to eat. But if we're going beyond practical to the spiritual, to me, there's also something beautiful about a sacrifice being completed after three days. Sound, sound right, New Testament scholars? Uh, that Jesus was sacrificed and on the third day came forth uh, no leftovers in that empty tomb. Verse 34 adds an interesting insight. It says, For the wave breast and the heave shoulder have I taken of the children of Israel from off the sacrifices of the peace offerings, and have given them unto Aaron the priest and unto his sons by a statute forever from among the children of Israel. Now the wave breast and the heave shoulder, what's that all about? Again, we've learned there's all kinds of different offerings, right? And there are wave offerings and heave offerings included among other things. And a wave offering, both of them sound like what they are, okay? Or they are what they sound like. A wave, you're waving this before the Lord. And heave, you're lifting it up to Him. Now, what's interesting here is, think about even just if you're working out. If you're waving something, what muscle is being engaged? A lot of it's the pectorals. The, the breast, and so there's a wave breast. And when you're heaving something heavenward, lifting, it's the deltoid, it's the shoulder. And so in this wave offering, let's, let's personify, let's embody this a little bit more. If you're waving something to God, then let's focus on the breast. If you're heaving something, lifting something to the Lord, then let's focus on the shoulder. And for you who are doing the, we the waving or the heaving, that's a part of the animal that you can then consume, the wave breast and the heave shoulder. I think it also gives us a good reminder of the high priest and his ceremonial robes. How you wear the priesthood is how you bear the priesthood, remember? And there's shoulder and breast there also, a breastplate of these holy stones, these gemstones, precious people of Israel. And there are shoulder stones to bear up the burdens of Israel. So breast and shoulder, good things to remember. Work and love. To bear burdens, but also to feel compassion. I think sometimes we're all, we're all breast and no shoulder. Oh, I feel for you. I'm not going to do anything for you. And sometimes we're all shoulder and no breast. That all serve you, but don't make me like it. And don't make me like you. No, we need to be both. And then one last passage, a review of all these offerings, 37 and 38. This is the law of the burnt offering, of the meat offering, of the sin offering, of the trespass offering, and of the consecrations, and of the sacrifice of the peace offerings, 
which the Lord commanded Moses in Mount Sinai in the day that he commanded the children of Israel to offer their oblations unto the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. Okay, so far so good. Now, 7, provide for the priests. Leviticus 8, let's consecrate the priests. We'll stay on that general topic. How do we, do, how do we work with Aaron and his sons? Now, God tells Moses to gather Israel all around the tabernacle so that they can witness the consecration of Aaron and his sons. So this is where I, can, I want you to see this. Here's a solemn assembly, so to speak, as we are installing uh, new officiants. We get to do that when a new prophet becomes president of the church, for example. In verse 6, what does he do? Moses brought Aaron and his sons. First, he washed them with water. Second, he clothed them in their priestly garments. He then anoints the tabernacle and all its furnishings. And then verse 12, and he poured of the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. So washed, clothed, anointed them as well as the tabernacle itself. I'm supposed to be an, an outgrowth. I am the temple of God. And so here's the, there's the permanent temple. We'll see in Jerusalem. There's the portable temple in the wilderness. That's the tabernacle. And then the ultimate portable temple, the body of God's servants. And that's what's happening among them. Moses then performs a bunch of sacrifices as required by God. And then verse 30, Moses took of the anointing oil and of the blood which was upon the altar and sprinkled it upon Aaron and upon his garments and upon his sons and upon his sons' garments with him and sanctified Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So this is anointing and sanctifying. This is oil and blood. This is Gethsemane and Calvary. All of it will be required to make priests as holy as the person they are trying to personify. You see more of it later in chapter 8, verse 33. You shall not go out of the door of the tabernacle of the congregation in seven days until the days of your consecration be at an end. For seven days shall he consecrate you. As he hath done this day, so the Lord hath commanded to do to make an atonement for you. So the priests had to stay put at the tabernacle for the next seven days. It's going to be a long week, I suppose. But that week, again, indicative of creation, that God is trying to take something without form and void and turn it into something very good. And I'm looking at you, Aaron, and your sons. And so stay here with me. Let this priestly consecration, this priestly creation, be full and complete and total. Once I pronounce you very good then you're ready to work. But not till then. Finally, verse 35 and 36, Therefore shall ye abide at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, day and night, seven days, and keep the charge of the Lord, that ye die not, for so I am commanded. So Aaron and his sons did all things which the Lord commanded by the hand of Moses. We'll start your service after that first week of consecration. We'll start you on the eighth day. Hmm. Eighth day, circumcision, eighth year, baptism. Eight is a great symbolic number for new beginnings because a new week has begun. Consecration behind us. And now the real work begins to unfold. Leviticus 9. Offerings here are made and offerings here are accepted. In verse 1, it came to pass on the eighth day. Here's their new beginning that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. 
He commands them to offer various sacrifices for the priests as well as for the people. And he promised them, for today the Lord will appear unto you. What a promise there in verse 4. In verse 6, Moses says, This is the thing which the Lord commanded that ye should do, and the glory of the Lord shall appear unto you. Moses said unto Aaron, Go unto the altar, offer thy sin offering, there's repentance, and thy burnt offering, there's consecration, and make an atonement for thyself and for the people, and offer the offerings of the people and make an atonement for them as the Lord commanded. They are going to see the glory of God. It will appear unto them. And when will it appear? As they are offering these kinds of sacrifices. As we repent and make covenants with the Lord and consecrate our all. I don't know of a better way to come to know him or a better way to come to see him in all his glory than when we're giving up the things that are, that are against that glory. When we're leaning in to the love that he's so fully that so fully he proffers us as we're coming boldly to the throne of grace that's when we truly come to see that glory Aaron and his sons then perform all of those sacrifices as commanded and in verse 22 Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them and came down from offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and peace offerings I'm so grateful that the Lord gave Aaron a chance to redeem himself this is the opposite extreme from the golden calf moment that he, at that point, I don't have anything to do with this. And it's them, you know, the people, and so they're bent on mischief. And I just, I mean, threw the earrings in and out came this calf. Oh, not quite. But Aaron, I will give you a chance to prove yourself, a chance to serve yet again and to lift up your hands before the people, to truly bless them. You're, that action with the golden calf ended up cursing them. But to put this gold to its true purposes will be the ultimate blessing. And, and he or she who harmed others spiritually can become a person who ends up helping them and blessing them. Aaron fits that bill perfectly. Then verse 23 and 24, Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people who were in such a better condition to bless others, having spent time in the house of the Lord, right? Now I've gone in. The glory of the Lord went in first. Then we went in and were glorified by that glory. We come out now and oh, I'm in such a better place, position, spirit. I want to be a blessing to other people. The temple has that effect on us. And what happens as a result, the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. We saw last week that Israel was too scared to ascend Sinai. But here we see God in his infinite mercy bringing Sinai down to them. Now, it may not have been the full experience that he had intended. We saw that at the end of last week with Exodus 34. And when Moses went back up to get the second set of stone tablets, they were a far cry from the first. But you will have a tabernacle. You will have a priesthood. You will have a degree of glory right here among you. And so as they shout and fall on their faces, there's, this is what he intended at the mountaintop. Now it's down in the valley below. 
And again, that's mercy on the part of the Messiah. I'll I come as close to you as, as you'll let me. Just please come unto me. Now, the end of Leviticus 9 needs to be a smooth transition into the beginning of Leviticus 10. Because as, as glorious as 9 is, 10 is, is rough. It's brutal. You just saw the mercy of the Lord coming down to be on their level. 10, you're going to see the justice of God for people that refused to come up to the level God commanded them. And it all has to do with fire. Chapter 9 ended with fire coming from God to consume these, these sacrifices. Remember the altar wasn't supposed to be out of hewn stone? Uh, the fire wasn't supposed to be kindled by mortal man, evidently. That these are gifts from God. So fire coming out from before the Lord to consume Righteous sacrifice, righteous offerings. Chapter 10, we're going to see fire come down from the Lord to consume unrighteous offerers. And this is a hard chapter to, to swallow, okay? Now, most people refer to it as strange fire. You see it described in, starting in verse 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. Now, it's really hard to know exactly what they've done wrong. Something seriously wrong based on the consequences of what they've, what they've done. But what does, what, can, what does it mean to offer strange fire before the Lord? Now, the last phrase helps us a little bit. It says he hadn't commanded them. So is this them overstepping their bounds? Is this them offering some kind of unauthorized offering? Uh, it's interesting in our day, we see a priesthood of all believers that would make Martin Luther jealous. Okay? We want the, the priesthood to be a power in every home, ideally. But we also have priesthood keys. And so there is democracy and equality being balanced with hierarchy and authority. Okay? We're proving contraries as far as how the priesthood is supposed to run. Uh, I remember being uh, on a vacation in a Muslim country and wanting to have uh, the sacrament with my family and, and asking our bishop if we could do, if perform the sacrament, administer the sacrament in our hotel. And he gave us permission, which I was very grateful for. Uh, but it was an interesting thing to feel the balance, to know I had authority, but to know I did not have authorization. And so, yes, God has given me the power to perform the sacrament. But unless my bishop said it was okay, then I was doing it when the Lord commanded me not. That would have been strange fire on my part. Well, many of us had the experience during COVID to be given, granted permission to perform the sacrament in our own homes. And that was a glorious gift. But it was a gift, not some kind of right that we can just take to ourselves. And was that part of the problem of what Nadab and Abihu were doing? I mean, we're the right people. We're sons of Aaron, right? We got to go halfway up Sinai with, with the 70 elders of Israel. We're, we're the good guys here. Oh, careful. Especially if you're rising in authority, please know the limits of that authority, which evidently Nadab and Abihu transgressed. I wonder also if there's something specific about the fire. They put fire, they put incense, but it was this offering of strange fire that caused this divine displeasure. 
And there again, I wonder if this was strange because it was kindled by Mir, Nadab, and Abihu instead of the type that was kindled by God himself. And I do worry sometimes if we're inventing our own authority, if we are claiming gifts that God has not given, and if we're trying to hew the stones of the altar instead of allowing a stone to be cut out of the mountain without hands, that's the kind that will eventually roll to fill the earth. Not anything that we come up with on our own. Uh, and compared to the kinds of things that God asks and explains and reveals for us to do, other lesser things might end up being strange to him. He wants a peculiar people, but he does not want strange fire. So what's the result? Verse 2, still more fire. There went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord This is strange fire being answered with devouring fire. It's the man-made fire being bookended by the fire that can only come from God. Makes me wonder again if God is trying to send this divine fire and mere mortals are standing in his way. In that case, that fire will consume them when it was meant to, to sanctify them. We cannot get in between God and the people he's trying to reach. We can't invent our own kinds of offerings that aren't authorized by him. There's a set of contraries here, right? Between agency on, on one hand and authority on the other. Between freedom and order. And God's house is a house of both. My father-in-law recently sent me a, a news article about a Catholic priest in, in Arizona who unwittingly, this was a sin and ignorance, just an honest mistake, he had been using the wrong language in baptismal ordinances, uh, sacraments as Catholics would call them, uh, throughout his ministry. And it was a small detail. It wasn't, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. It was, we baptize you. And some would say, that sounds beautiful. It's like this collective community that is... Uh, ushering another person into that community. But that's not the required language of the Catholic ordinance. And when it was discovered, the priest was, uh, was more devastated than anybody. He wasn't fighting back and pushing back, saying, oh, come on, this is such a small thing. It's a word, it's a pronoun, okay? And there's still significance here, it's fine. I've been ordained, I have Catholic authority. No, the... The Catholic Church decided those baptisms are invalid and need to be performed again with the proper language. And the priest, uh, who again unwittingly had had made these mistakes, agreed wholeheartedly and was doing everything within his power to try to make things right. There were some articles with some feedback, (laughs) some pushback by others that saw this. And... I remember my father-in-law again sent me one that was fascinating of most likely either a Protestant journalist or perhaps a strong ex-Catholic or anti-Catholic journalist that just shredded the Catholic Church over what they perceived as uh, unnecessary strictness. It's like, come on. Oh, the people had every intent and the priest had every righteous intent. Just let it go. Now, Perhaps as Latter-day Saints, we'd probably maybe side with that. 
I, I, I can only imagine with a lay priesthood how many times that missionaries speaking a foreign language have probably butchered the baptismal prayer. <laughs> or how many priests uh, missed a word here or there in the sacrament prayer and either the bishop didn't catch it or was just too soft-hearted to shake his head no. Uh, I, I get it. But when I read those articles, I did feel grateful that the Catholic Church recognized the seriousness of the sacraments and wanted no strange fire, even if innocently kindled, to enter upon their altars of sacrifice. There is something for flexibility and mercy, something to be said for that. But there is something to be said for strictness and accuracy and doing things exactly the way the Lord has asked. There's a contrary to be proven. And I worry that we have emerged from a period of human history that was overly strict, simply to overcorrect to a period of human history that is overly indulgent and over, overly permissive when there are some things that need to be just done right. Well, in the aftermath of this, verse 3, Moses says to Aaron, and this sounds really harsh, but again, imagine the seriousness of sin and the seriousness and sacredness of sacrifice. Moses says to Aaron, this is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Aaron didn't even protest, though these were two of his own sons that he had just lost. No, there's, I will not make excuses. I will not fight back or question God's justice. In this circumstance, I will bite my tongue and strive to hold back tears and just trust that God knows what he's doing. There is something to be said for coming unto Christ on his terms instead of on our own. Again, prove the contrary here. If you are overly strict, be a little bit more merciful. But as most of society tends to be, if you're overly indulgent, lean into doing things God's way on God's terms. Elder Renlund taught a powerful thing after some time in Africa. He said that when it comes to assistance or welfare, the further we are from the source of assistance, the more entitled to it we feel. It's like if it's the government that, that owes me uh, if there's been a natural disaster and FEMA comes in as just passing out debit cards, well, it's the government. It's distant. It's impersonal. And so, of course, I can make demands on the government. We sometimes even feel that with the church, where the church, you know, it's these unnamed fast offering funds. And it just comes from the church, as, as if it were just an impersonal entity. And, of course, the church should come through and help me pay my bills. Well, is there a sense of entitlement there that is cause for concern? Because if the bishop actually came to you and said, actually, this is the, type, this is the fast offerings of brother and sister so-and-so. Would you like to take their money? Yikes. Now, if it's to, make, to meet your needs, uh, make ends meet, then I'm sure that even if you went to brother and sister so-and-so personally and asked for your, their assistance, they would probably give it to you. But the difference is you wouldn't feel entitled to it. And that's the point Elder Renlund was making. And to me, it's, it has struck me since I learned that from him, that if we're making demands of God, 
And if we're second-guessing his governance of the universe, chances are we're feeling far away from him. I've seen that in my own experience. And if I'm feeling entitled to blessings, or even entitled to explanations, like, why did you do this? Or why are you doing this to me? Or why aren't you doing this in the church? I'm probably further away from him than I should be. Because honestly, in my own experience, the times I feel closest to him, I'm not making any demands whatsoever. I know I'm in a good place. I'm okay. Even if life outside is hard, even if I'm going through trials and adversity, even if there's things about church history I don't agree with or mistakes I'm perceiving other people make, it's God's in charge and I trust him. And I'll leave it in his all-powerful hands. Aaron is at that place right here. In verse 4, Moses calls for Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron. So these would be cousins to the deceased. And he says to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. Oh, those would be some devastated pallbearers. In verse 6, Moses says to Aaron, and unto Eleazar, and unto Ithamar, his sons. So now these are Nadab and Abihu's own brothers. Uncover not your heads, neither rend your clothes, lest ye die, and lest wrath come upon all the people. But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord hath kindled. You see, uncovering your head and rending your clothing were symbols or signs of grieving, of mourning, kind of sackcloth and ashes kind of a moment. And Aaron and his other sons, the, the father and brothers of the deceased, do not mourn publicly. Continue your service, offer your offerings, do it right, no strange fire. Again, this sounds harsh, this sounds overly strict. But I think there's something to be learned about the place of mourning. And what are we mourning over? Remember Mormon talked about the sorrow of his people? And he was so excited to see that sorrow because he thought it might be godly sorrow that would affect a change. But it wasn't. It was worldly sorrow. Now, in Aaron's case and his brothers, I'm sure this would be godly sorrow and devastation. But also, would it be focused more on what happened to the brothers or on what the brothers happened to have done? And I'm, am I more sorrowful over consequence than I am over crime? Am I saddened by, by sin as I should be? Or am I just saddened that somebody has to reap what they sowed? So be careful in our mourning. In verse 7, You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of the congregation lest ye die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. I think that phrase applies far beyond just the circumstances in Leviticus chapter 10. When the anointing oil is upon us, are there some things we just won't do? And other things that we, we absolutely will and must? When we have been baptized, when we've been given the gift of the Holy Ghost, when we've made covenants, when we've been endowed when the anointing oil is upon us, I just can't go there. I just can't do that. I cannot participate in those kinds of activities. It's not in keeping with my covenants with Christ. 
Gethsemane is upon me, the olive press, and with that oil, there are certain lines I will not cross. In verse 8, the Lord spake unto Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now, based on that verse, some scholars have suggested perhaps that is the strange fire. Maybe that's what they did wrong. Maybe Nadab and Abihu were intoxicated when they went and offered those sacrifices. I mean, everybody was celebrating over the true fire that God had sent to consume the offerings. Maybe Nadab and Abihu got a little out of hand and came back to kindle some fire that was prompted by some spirits other than the Spirit of God. We use that word spirits to describe liquor and alcohol and so on. And we don't know if that's exactly what they did wrong, but we do see there that if you are under the influence of those false spirits, let's stick with that word, then you cannot officiate in these sacrifices. Now, I hope that helps us understand something far beyond just alcohol consumption. The word of wisdom should protect us from all of that. But here... What spirit motivates us when we come to the sacrificial altar? Is it a spirit of humility and a meekness and of repentance? Or is it a spirit of pride, of entitlement, of something against the spirit of God? That is something we need to overcome. Verse 10, then he says that ye may put difference between holy and unholy and between unclean and clean and that ye may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken unto them by the hand of Moses. Yes, put a difference. There are some lines that just can't be crossed, some boundaries that, that cannot budge, and we need to honor those and, and, and stay on the Lord's side of the line. That phrase describes so much of what we see in the book of Leviticus, making a difference between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean, between true fire and strange fire, and we have to learn to discern. No wonder he's saying, teach the children of Israel these things. Don't fall for the moral relativism that refuses to draw lines anywhere. Again, their strictness having been overcorrected to absolute leniency and indulgence. This is a world that says that absolute truth just doesn't exist. And that we shouldn't teach our children right and wrong. We just, you do you and go with the flow. And, oh, there is mercy more than robbing justice. It is demolishing justice. And we can't go there. In verse 16, keep going. Moses diligently sought the goat of the sin offering. And behold, it was burnt. And he was angry with Eliezer and Ithamar, these other sons of Aaron, which were left alive, saying, Wherefore have ye not eaten the sin offering in the holy place, seeing it is most holy? And God hath given it you to bear the iniquity of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord. Now here we're back to storyline. And what just took place is Moses is looking around. The, the part of the goat that's there for the sin offering has been burnt to a crisp. And that's part that the priests are supposed to consume and so, uh-oh, the, the sacrifice is still going wrong. It's going wronger and wronger. Perhaps in the chaos of, of the, the death of Nadab and Abihu and, and what's going on here and Aaron and the, the cousins and the brothers and the de devastation of the house of Israel. What is happening? Perhaps in the confusion and chaos, they, they didn't take the sacrifice off and now, that it's, now it's just burned. 
and beyond human consumption when they were supposed to be eating it. Perhaps instead it was a matter of, no, we're just taking all of it out and just sacrificing that outside the camp. With I know the part that we were supposed to eat, but I just can't bring myself to do it. And Moses is frustrated because it's like, guys, we have to do this right. There must be absolute exact obedience. Didn't you see what just happened? To which Moses, excuse me, Aaron then responds in verse 19. Aaron says to Moses, Behold, this day have they offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord. They did what they were supposed to. They did their part right, even though my other sons didn't. And such things have befallen me. This is a father grieving, mourning, told that I can't uncover my head, I can't rend my clothing, but I've torn my heart. And I'm devastated over what happened. I'm devastated for them. I'm devastated they did something wrong. I'm, my heart is broken in all kinds of directions here. So because such things have befallen me, if I had eaten the sin offering today, should it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? You see, Aaron is, again, defending his other sons and himself. We did our part of the sacrifice correctly. But if this is a matter of not rejoicing with the people, can you understand why I'm in no place to rejoice? I will bite my lip and swallow hard and not make an outward sign of mourning for my sons. But to try to put on a happy face and celebrate with the people of Israel I can't do injustice to the first great commandment. I won't do that. But I can't do injustice to the second great commandment either. And I am trying. You just talked about drawing that line and putting a difference between holy and unholy. I am trying to walk that line, and it's a razor's edge right now. I, I'm, I'm amazed at what Aaron is saying here, especially the very next verse, verse 20. When Moses heard that, he was content. So whatever Aaron said, whatever he meant by that, Moses got it and he was okay with that. He was trying to honor justice for God's sake. He was trying to honor mercy for Aaron's sake. And Moses, the greatest judge of Israel, the one who best learned to discern and was in the best position to teach how to, to differentiate between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean, he, Moses, was satisfied, suggesting that most likely God was too. You see, God is walking the razor's edge with each of us, trying to balance perfectly his justice and his mercy. Thankfully, he has perfect of both and perfect judgment to strike the perfect balance. That all is in the lectures on faith. Without a God of perfect justice, we wouldn't be able to trust him. He's too fickle. Without a God of perfect mercy, we'd never be able to follow him because I've sinned. But without a God of perfect judgment, we'd never know if he was imbalanced in his administration of those other attributes. Well, he's perfect in all of them. We seem to, at least in my case, I stink at all three. But the Lord was perfect at all. And Moses was content, as was God, with this kind of balancing act. Strictness of the law, but also honoring the humanity of what had just taken place. We need to prove those contraries too. Now, verse 11, we're off the history, the narrative, and back to the law. Are you still with me? <laughs> okay, we've still got a lot of chapters ahead. 
Uh, chapter 11 is about kosher laws. We just learned we're trying to draw lines and differentiate between holy and holy. Well, let's do that even in terms of what we eat. This is a long chapter and very complicated. And again, it's one that you would go back to frequently if you're a Jewish cook or just a Jewish eater. Because I need to know everything that's going into my body to know if I'm holy or unholy in all of this. Verse 2 sums it all up. These are the beasts which ye shall eat among all the beasts that are on the earth. And then he starts to explain, and it's complicated. Verse 3 and 4. Whatsoever parteth the hoof and is cloven-footed, and cheweth the cud among the beasts, that shall ye eat. So look at their feet. And notice their mouth when they're eating. How do they chew and how do they walk? But it both have to be there. Okay. Nevertheless, these shall ye not eat of them that chew the cud, or of them that divide the hoof, as the camel, because he cheweth the cud, but divideth not the hoof. He is unclean unto you. Same with the coney. That's the rock badger. Sounds really appetizing. The rabbit. Verse 7 and 8. And the swine, though he divide the hoof, and be cloven-footed, yet he cheweth not the cud. He is unclean to you. Of their flesh shall ye not eat, and their carcass shall ye not touch. They are unclean to you. So you might have one and not the other. And maybe they got the right kind of feet, but not the right kind of chewing. Then it's off. But what if they have the right kind of chewing? Well, wrong kind of feet? Still off the list. Wow. Okay, this is complicated. Uh-huh. Well, is there anything wrong with those specific animals? Not necessarily. Did you catch the last two words at the end of verse 8? They are unclean to you. It's not that they might be inherently evil. But to you, I'm trying to help you draw some lines in the sand. And since eating is something you do so frequently, this might be a good way to help you remember God and remember law, and remember strictness, and obedience, and justice, since that seems to be the more forgettable of the two. Mercy might come a little bit more naturally, especially when you're the one wanting the mercy. <laughs> Nobody's asking for justice for themselves, like, I did something wrong, please be mean. Please be strict, please be just. No, it's like when I'm a victim, then yes, I want justice for the other person. But if I'm perpetrator, mercy will do, thank you very much. Well, let's help you overcome that and learn to see lines wherever God has drawn them, including some lines that perhaps he alone knows the reason for. So these are just going to be unclean to you. I want you to trust me on this. He adds some restrictions on seafood. In verse 12, Whatsoever hath no fins nor scales in the waters, that shall be an abomination unto you. So fish is okay if there are fins and scales, but other crustaceans and things, that's a no-no. Uh, certain kinds of birds, he then goes on and labels unclean. Eagles, vultures, ravens, swans, a bunch of others. Again, I don't know if I was looking for those things on the menu to begin with, but evidently they shouldn't be on the menu for an ancient Israelite. How about insects? Now we're really appetizing. Verse 21, These may ye eat of every flying, creeping thing that goeth upon all four which have legs above their feet to leap withal upon the earth. Now, don't, doesn't every animal have legs above the feet? Well, here he's actually trying to describe certain kinds of insects and how their legs function. Are they all down? Do they come up and then down? Are these the leaping kind? That's what he says at the end of that verse, if they leap. So those ones, if the leaping kind you can eat. So locusts, 
go for it. Uh, John the Baptist would prove that that's an okay thing, right? Locusts and wild honey. Grasshoppers are okay. Uh, certain beetles are all right. Um, Hakuna Matata, right? Just have those kinds of things. But other kinds of insects, no, off the list. Uh, now, what's to me amazing about all of this, and again, it goes on for like 40 plus verses about this. I'm grateful for how short the word of wisdom is in section 89 compared to how long the kosher laws are in Leviticus 11. But there are some equivalences there as far as what is it helping us to remember. And really, it's helping us remember God. There's most of the things in the word of wisdom, science itself has proven and say, yes, it's, this is the best way to live. But every once in a while, I'll read some kind of report saying, oh, no, it's good to have this or good to have that in moderation or whatever. And it's like, eh, still against the word of wisdom. No, thanks. I'm not interested. Because God is drawing a line and connecting obedience and, and discipleship, self-discipline, to something I do all the time and sometimes overindulge in. And that's my meals. You ever wondered why we bless the food before every meal? Is it to change the nature of the food? An old joke I heard of a boy that was helping his dad bring in the groceries, and he said, Dad, we should just bless all the food right here. It would save us all kinds of prayers before meals. And the dad laughed and said, Great idea, son. It's just that the food doesn't need to be blessed until after your mother cooks it. Well, do we just go dedicate the supermarket? No. Are we trying to save time before meals? Not at all. In fact, are we blessing food or are we remembering God? Ah, now I understand why I'm supposed to bless the food. Because I won't forget food. Sadly, I do too often forget God. So if I can connect the forgettable, prayer, with the unforgettable, food, then perhaps I won't forget as frequently. Maybe I'll end up remembering God. In the case of kosher laws, I need to know what this animal's foot looked like and how they chew their food and what the, the sea creature was like that this seafood's coming from and what did this, animal, this insect look like before it's on my plate. Uh, I've got to think anytime I put a fork in my mouth, I need to remember God and that's, that's good, especially for Israelites that are having a hard time remembering him. The more always, you know, pray always, do I always remember him as promised in the, in the sacrament prayers? This is going to help with this. Before any bite, I'm going to think about God. That's a good thing. Then fast forward to the end of the chapter for a few last final principles. Verse 44, For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. It's the Lord that's trying to set us apart from others. And therefore, it's the Lord that is giving us these, these rules to keep, these instructions to follow. At the root of discipleship is discipline. And so he is asking us to be disciplined, to become true disciples. 45, another overarching principle. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. There it is again, this holiness to the Lord. Is that what's on your mind all the time, before every meal, before every bite? It's got to be. It's not just the high priests that have this golden plate across the forehead. You all need to. And so will you be holy? Will holiness to the Lord be imprinted upon your mind and heart? I did bring you out of Egypt after all. And you weren't complaining about the very specific instructions of the Passover meal. 
or just how narrow the path was through the Red Sea, I'm still expecting that level of self-discipline and trust in the Lord. I'm still trying to get you out of your Egyptian background. And then finally, 47, to make a difference between the unclean and the clean, between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. Kosher laws, even beyond any kind of physical health, are meant for spiritual strength to help you learn to discern, to distinguish. That's what creation is for, right? We're going to separate light from darkness. We're going to separate water from above and water from below. We're going to separate sea from land. We're going to separate male and female. We're going to learn about differences and, and, and how God works through those differences to make the ultimate difference in each of us. You could have used a little more of that when it was the difference between the golden calf and the golden tabernacle furnishings, or the difference between Egypt and Israel, or as we're about to find out, the difference between Israelite and Canaanite. Do you know how to draw these lines and stay on the Lord's side of them? That's what this is all for. Leviticus 12, we then see more clean and unclean. In this case, the purification that is required of mothers after childbirth. When a woman gives birth, if it's a son, that child is supposed to be circumcised the eighth day. And then, verse 4, she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. It would be twice that number if a daughter were born. Either way, though, she, the mother, shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. Now, on the practical side, this might be a focus on, you don't need to be out in public as you're recovering from childbirth. You don't need to bring your child out other than the, the circumcision that's necessary. Uh, I know of plenty of mothers and fathers that are grateful for that kind of approach. Like, we, we're not going to bless the baby for a while <laughs> because we want to, to have some time at home and let everybody recover and, and make sure the baby is healthy. Now, there's, I'm sure, more spiritual reasons than just that. But this period of purification, you have shed blood in order to bring new life into the world. That is a holy experience. And so let, let's, let's dramatize that by, by pronouncing you ceremonially unclean so you have a period of purification to come into to true holiness and cleanliness again. Again, there's an interesting irony, uh, almost against the natural logic of, no, that was the cleanest thing you could ever do was bring life in. Well, then again, if Jesus brought life into the world by, be, by taking on death, if he ushered in holiness for us by, becoming, by taking upon himself our unholiness for him, maybe in this case, this mother is being the Christ figure, the type of Christ that I will become unholy so that, so that you can become holy. I will die as far as ritual purity is concerned so that you can have new life. And thankfully, life will return to me as well. So it does. Verse 6, When the days of her purifying are fulfilled, for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation unto the priest. 
So both burnt offering and sin offering are required. Lamb for one, bird for another. But if you can't afford a lamb, then verse 8 is for you. If she be not able to bring a lamb, then she shall bring two turtles, namely turtle doves, or two young pigeons, and one, again, for the burnt offering, the other still for the sin offering. And the priest shall make an atonement for her, and she shall be clean. Now, why does that matter? Well, there's going to be plenty of poor in Israel, and one of them we know by name. We don't know a lot of poor people by name, but Mary was one, as was Joseph. And this poor, poverty-stricken couple from the back, back alley uh, city of Nazareth, when they came to bring the baby Jesus to the temple on the eighth day, they did not have a lamb. They only had those two turtle doves. It says in chapter 2 of Luke, verse 21, When eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, so they are now living, Leviticus chapter 12, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to that which was said in the law of Moses. In their case, what was it? A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Oh, the poverty of these two celestial souls. But blessed are the poor who come unto me. God would provide. In fact, they brought their two birds because they didn't have a lamb. Oh, actually, they had the ultimate lamb of God. That's what they were bringing their fulfillment of Leviticus chapter 12 is so profound, so beautiful. Chapter 13 and 14, then, are two of my favorite chapters in Leviticus. Now, it's a ritual about leprosy, and it speaks volumes of how we overcome the leprosy of sin. Notice the details in, the law is in 13, the ritual is in 14. Uh, leprosy, again, if you take it as a metaphor for sin, this slow decay and death from within. Leprosy, there can be a lot of forms, but it's contagious. Yeah, it makes you unclean. You're trying to keep people away from this contagion the, so they can be safe and unharmed by it. But it's something I can't get over on my own. I need help. And if I can overcome it, then there's still some things I need to do to be ritually clean. And Leviticus 3, 13 and 14 describe that process. In chapter 13, verse 4 through 6, when you see the signs of leprosy, there's some skin condition, something, there's so much of that can happen on the inside of us that is just invisible. But once it becomes visible, we got some issues that are obvious. Okay, We can't ignore them. And so how to discern, how to detect this? Chapter 13, verse 4, The priest shall shut up him that hath the plague seven days. Now, we're all experts of this thanks to COVID-19. There's quarantine. Okay? As soon as any kind of sign of sickness is detected, go shut them up. Next, the priest shall look on him the seventh day. So we're not giving up on them entirely, but quarantine, self-isolate for a while, and then come and see if you're better. On the seventh day, good day for that, right? Symbolic day of rest, day of the fullness of God's glory. Behold, if the plague in his sight be at a stay, and the plague spread not in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up seven days more. 
So let's make sure, yes, the symptoms might be gone, but are you still contagious? Hmm, again, is this haunting us from COVID-19 treatments? So let's make sure he's still not, he's not contagious anymore. And this is a day before they even understood the germ theory and, and what real contagion was. For them, it was just ritual. It was just ceremonial. Well, God knows a lot more than that. Anyway, the priest shall look on him again the seventh day. And behold, if the plague be somewhat dark and the, and the plague spread not in the skin, the priest shall pronounce him clean. It's but a scab. He shall wash his clothes and be clean. At first, when you read it, it's like, oh, it's dark. This is bad. It's like, no, actually, this is good because it's no longer festering. It's healed itself. You're better. It's scabbed over. So you're good. Uh, no longer contagious. You see the balance? We're trying to protect and heal the leper, but we're also trying to protect the surrounding community. And so we're balancing isolation and quarantine on the one hand, church discipline you might consider, with let's keep checking on them and let's, let's hope and we'll pray and we'll, we'll help them through things. Okay, you can, you can get better. Illnesses pass. Wounds can heal. So, so let the healing progress. Scab might be a good thing. Evidence that some stuff is happening on the inside that's good. I guess in some ways what we're trying to do is look for trajectories rather than just oh, isolated ups and downs. Over time, is it starting to scab over? Is it starting to change? Are you becoming, you know, protecting yourself against the intrusion of these outside influences? Yeah, I'm scabbed over. I'm good. Uh, the up of repentance, the down of further falling into sin. But over time, I'm getting better. Or over time, it seems like I'm getting worse. Take the big picture as you're judging yourself or others. Now, a lot of the, when you read this chapter, a lot of the discussion revolves around hair and what's happening to the hair in this, this scab or in this spot of skin that seems to be dying or decaying. And now for any of you that, have, that are follically challenged and have some hair issues, don't worry. Verse 40, the man whose hair is fallen off his head it's okay. He is bald, yet is he clean? Bald but clean. Beware a misdiagnosis here. Let's look a little more closely and don't just, uh-oh, no hair. Must be a problem. To all of my bald friends and bald family members. Uh, I'm closely related to many. Uh, it's, it's all right. It's not a sign of divine disfavor. Now in verse 45, the leper in whom the plague is, what do you do here? His clothes shall be rent and his head bare, and he shall put a covering upon his upper lip, and shall cry, unclean, unclean. All the days wherein the plague shall be in him, he shall be defiled, he is unclean, he shall dwell alone. Without the camp shall his habitation be. Again, that might sound harsh, but we're used to it post-COVID. Because what happens in the possibility of spreading infection Rending the clothes and burying the head might be, are your, is your clothing contaminated? Then let's go wash all of that. Now, putting a covering upon his upper lip. Don't, don't confine yourself to like, I've got to cover my mustache area. No, that's putting a cloth over your upper lip and cloth hangs down. So what have you just done? You've masked yourself. It's amazing that ancient Israel gets the mask mandate. Uh, that the, they don't understand germ theory. They don't, un, don't understand these things from a medical standpoint. But God does. 
And so it's trying to protect the, them from the spread of contagion by covering the upper lip. Crying unclean, unclean, there's warning others. It's checking our own symptoms and not wanting to spread them to other people. It's being careful. It's being kind. And then dwelling alone without the camp. That's just self-isolation. That's just quarantine. It doesn't need to be permanent. We want them to get better and then reintegrate in the community. And when it describes lepers turning anything they touch into something unclean, doesn't that sound like contact tracing? Where have you been? Who have you been nearby? Where did you sit? What did you touch? Let's, let's cleanse all of that stuff too. Again, God is so far ahead of medical technology and understanding for ancient Israel. And one last detail in chapter 13. What do we do with leprous garments? If somebody's been wearing these things, something, they're contagious, they're leprous, or their, their clothing we're concerned about too. Three possibilities. Verse 52, it shall be burnt in the fire. Verse 54, wash the thing wherein the plague is. Or 56, rend it out of the garment. And I'm fascinated by those three distinct approaches. If it's completely contaminated, just get it completely rid of. Burn the whole thing. If it's more surface level, wash it off and you'll be fine. If it's contaminated, but only in parts, then is it possible to tear that part out and preserve the rest of the, of the raiment, the rest of that garment? And when you think about sin and its possible contagion, when you think about influences in your life that are contaminating you, it's interesting to think of those three possibilities too. Are there certain oh, spheres of influence? Are there certain circles of friends? Are there certain... Oh, sources of entertainment or habits or practices, whatever it might be. Is it completely contaminating to the point that you need to completely remove it from your life? Then do it. It's worth starting over. It's worth it to have a, scorch, a scorched earth policy, socially speaking, and be lonely for a while. Burn the garment completely. I can never go back to that store. Or that website is now on my restricted list. I will never look at it again. I've had students over the years that have uh, contributed to my collection where they'll take CDs back in the old days when we used those that they'd smashed up because of obscene lyrics. Or VHS cassettes, remember those? That they had burned in the fireplace and then delivered to me. <laughs> These are my, my Babylonian contributions, the, the contraband, things that I shouldn't have been holding on to. They were holding on to me. And I've burned them to a crisp. I've completely eliminated them from my life. For others, no, it's not that level, but it does need to be washed clean. And if I can purify this, then I can still use that technology, or I can still be among this circle of friends, but we need to, we need to be clean. And sometimes it's just this one part needs to be removed. And if, there's, if there are ways to do that, that can still preserve other things, if there are filters I can see for videos, if there are uh, things that I can just, I can still be part of this group, but I'm just not going to go with them to that particular activity. It puts me in, in harm's way. I, I do love just those possibilities. Completely reject it, wash it clean, 
or just take out the impure parts. You'll have to be the judge of that. You'll have to discern between the clean and the unclean. But that's what we're learning to do. Now, Leviticus 14 just might be my favorite chapter in Leviticus. It's one of my favorite sacrificial rites. And I talked about this a couple of, maybe a year or so ago at Easter, uh, trying to make sense of this because it's such a powerful ritual. I'm sad that in the general curriculum for the church, we're skipping Leviticus 14. Now, Jesus never skipped Leviticus 14. Even though he'd come to fulfill the law, he kept this one. Because Leviticus 14 tells you what to do with a leper that is healed. And Jesus had a thing for healing lepers. You remember when he healed the, the, the one leper at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8, the one who had braved the multitude to come to see him. He said, go thy way, show thyself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. In other words, go to the priest and live Leviticus 14. And then when the 10 lepers come to Jesus asking for help, and he tells it, he doesn't heal them on the spot. Instead, he says, oh, well, go act as if you were healed. Go fulfill Leviticus 14. He tells them, go show yourselves unto the priests. Now, that would be odd for them because they'd be like, wait, what? We're, we're not clean. Well, act in faith. Show yourselves to the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. Wow. By the time they got there, they were acting on Leviticus 14 before Leviticus 14 applied. But by the time they got to their destination, it applied. That's pretty impressive timing on the Lord's part. But like I said, he honored this law. And no wonder, since the law was meant to honor him the symbolism of Leviticus 14 is so deep and so rich. I honestly wish that bishops today didn't act it out literally because the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals would be after us. But the Society for the Preservation of True Christian Symbolism uh, would rejoice in any bishop that kept a pair of birds in their office and some scarlet material, and some hyssop plant, and some cedar wood. For any time a repentant sinner, a healed leper, came into their office wanting to confess their sins and seek the blessings of forgiveness. Here's how it unfolds. It's my love this chapter. Verse 2 and 3. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing, he shall be brought unto the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp, and the priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then the rest of the ritual proceeds. So, so far, you're healed. Well, let's be sure. Let's actually go out of camp to make sure that you're not still contagious. I'm willing to go there with you. I'm willing to put myself in harm's way. I'm the priest, okay? And you need help, and I'm here to help you. So you bishops, bless you for being open to the contagion of sin uh, as you are trying to help people overcome theirs, right? So let's go out of the camp, though. Make sure you're safe and healthy, and we'll see what happens. If you really are clean, then we're not going to be outside the camp for long, because what I really want is to bring you straight back into the camp, full fellowship. But here's what we need to do out there. Verse 4. Then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be cleansed two birds, alive and clean, and scarlet wood, and scarlet, and hyssop. And the priest shall command that one of the birds be killed 
in an earthen vessel over running water. How's that for specificity? As for the living bird, he shall take it and the cedar wood and the scarlet and the hyssop and shall dip them and the living bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water. Now, what are we supposed to make of all that? Now, I understand what he's doing. The leper, you, you look good. I think you're clean. Let's go out in the, outside the camp to be sure. And once I double check everything, and yes, you're ready to be discharged. But before I let you go, let's just do this one little ritual. Take the two birds, take one, put it in a clay pot, hold it out over the running water, some kind of stream that's out there, and then wring its head off. Now this sounds brutal, but then you take the other bird, wrap it up in the scarlet material, the hyssop plant, uh, the, the cedar wood, dip it in the blood that's down in that, in that clay pot. Then what do you do? Verse 7, he shall sprinkle upon him that is to be cleansed from the leprosy seven times, and shall pronounce him clean. You're good to go. Then he shall let the living bird loose into the open field, probably dripping blood uh, and, and pieces of hyssop uh, as he's flapping his wings. Then he that is to be cleansed shall wash his clothes, shave off all his hair, and wash himself in water that he may be clean. And after that, he shall come into the camp. But even when he's back, he shall tarry abroad out of his tent seven days. And if that still wasn't strange enough, verse 14, the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering that's later going to be offered at the altar, and the priest shall put it upon the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. Later, it says you're supposed to do the same thing with the consecrated oil. Right earlobe, right thumb, right big toe. Now, last week we saw that in Exodus, that they were supposed to do something about ears and thumbs and toes for the priests uh, as well, as part of their consecration. Now, what in the world is going on here? This one, this, this bush is ablaze, just begging us to turn aside to see. So let's do that. Now, we already saw that leprosy can be a good symbol for sin, this internal corruption that's making us rot from the inside out. But... We can be cleansed. We can be healed through the atonement of Jesus Christ. And the help of a priest can go a long way with that. Ultimately, especially the large, every sin, the high priest of good things to come, Jesus Christ, is the one that will pronounce us clean. In, in larger, significant sins, it can, it can be helpful to have someone a little closer to home and a bishop or state president help pronounce us clean as well. One that will help us be avoid cont contaminating others, but one that wants to help reintegrate us back into the community, to reconcile us vertically and horizontally. Well, uh, to do this, what's up with all of this ritual? Well, birds, let's start with that. And years ago, when I first really wrestled with this and spent as much time in Leviticus 14 as I needed, I was thinking, okay, birds, what do I know about birds? Well, they fly, okay, does that do any? Uh, they're not, oh, they're not earthbound. Ooh, Holy Ghost, sign of the dove. Maybe birds are a good representation of the spirit because it's not, like I said, not earthbound. It's, it's not as physical. It's, yeah, let's go with spirit. But this bird in a clay pot, now this one really confused me until I was racking my brain and I remembered something that King Benjamin had said. He talked about Christ being born and that he would inhabit a tabernacle of clay. Ooh, an earthen vessel? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we're made of the earth. 
Okay, so we're all vessels, earthen vessels. We're all tabernacles of clay. And when we're born, the spirit enters the body. That bird enters the clay pot. Now, in this case, it's got to be Jesus. Why? Because it's over running water. And running water is pure. It's living, ah, living water. Yeah, okay. So I put this bird into this clay pot, this earthen vessel, hold it out over the living water. Here's the birth of Jesus. I've just reenacted or pre-enacted, I guess the case would be. And what ends up happening? That bird is sacrificed. That bird loses its life, it sheds its blood. Why? So that the other bird can fly free. Now, how did I even decide which bird to, to, would die and then which would live? It was at random. In this case, they just picked one. It was just as likely to be me, but it was him. Is there a sense in our case that it should have been me, but it was him? And as this bird flies free, extremely grateful that it wasn't the other bird, does it realize it owes its existence to the sacrifice of its counterpart? Do we recognize that? Do we recognize the symbolism of the scarlet and the hyssop and the cedar. I couldn't think what those three represented until, again, racking my brain, the word hyssop stood out to me. And I'm like, where have I seen that? What's hyssop? It's just kind of this long stringy plant sort of a thing. And, oh, that's right, Passover. I remember that they used hyssop as the paintbrush. That with their hyssop plant, they would dip it into the blood of the, oh, okay, scarlet material. There's the blood of the lamb. And they would use the hyssop to paint the door frame. There's my cedar wood. Hyssop, lamb's blood, and door frame, posts and lintel. That's all Passover. And scarlet material, cedar wood, hyssop plant, that's it's like a portable Passover. It's Passover in miniature. I'm, all of those symbols are still right here. And what did Passover teach me? That it's only through the death of the firstborn can those in bondage to sin ultimately emerge to a day of deliverance. It's the only thing that does it. So do you understand this bird, this living one, wrapped up in the symbols of the Passover, dipped in the blood of its sacrificial substitute, and then allowed to fly free. Leper, do you understand what it cost for you to come clean? Sinner, do you understand the worth of your soul? That Jesus was willing to substitute himself for you? Then what do we do? We, we sprinkle you seven times because you are completely, totally, perfectly clean. There's the wholeness of a new creation. What do, we, what do you do? Wash your clothing. Put off the natural man. In fact, shave off all your hair. How's that for a new beginning? Bald as the baby you were when you were born. So rebirth here. In fact, go wash yourself in water. You washed your clothes already, now wash you. Oh, emerging rebaptism, so to speak, rebirth as this bald little baby. 
and then come back into the camp. You're one of us again. Oh, you're back in the house of Israel. You're back close to the house of God. But don't go into your house quite yet. Stay outside the tent for a week, seven days. You see, that way your real beginning starts again on the eighth. Just like your circumcision. Just like that eighth year baptism that we practice. Just like the eighth day was the beginning of the new week after creation. Start then. And then what's up with this earlobe and thumb and toe? It's all on the right side, that covenant side. Table of showbread side, the bread of the presence, the bread of faces. And with God looking on then, his presence made manifest. What do I do with the blood of the offering, the trespass offering? Can I make new covenants? Promising to keep them more strictly this time? Can you put that blood on my earlobe? That place where the hole would be if I were to permanently attach myself to the household of God. Remember that ritual in Exodus 21? Ear pierced. Put it on my right earlobe because that's the closest thing to my, my mind so that everything I think about from this moment forward will be covered by the atonement of Christ. There's the blood equivalent of holiness to the Lord on my mind. Put it on the thumb of my right hand. Why? So that everything I do from now on with these hands, hands that were unclean before, will be purified, cleansed. And everything I do from this moment forward will be covered by the atonement of Christ. In fact, put some on the big toe of my right foot. Why? So that everywhere I go, I will be reminded that cleanliness can only come through the blood of the Lamb. And I want to walk as he walked and do as he did and think as he thinks. Why? Because I don't want any more birds to die. I don't want any more blood to be shed for me. I want to be clean permanently. My friends, do you understand now why I wish that bishops had birds in their offices? Not to slay them, but to remind the repentant sinner of the cost of their cleanliness. Maybe some scarlet wood or some hyssop or some cedar might be a little easier than a birdcage. But something to help each of us realize what the Savior did for you and for me, for every sinner, for every leper in need of cleansing. Personally, I don't know of a more beautiful ritual in all of Leviticus than that one. Now, the chapter gives us one last clue that where was the leper living? And could there be some contagion there? And what do we do with a house? <laughs> with garments, it was, do we burn it? Do we wash it? Do we take out the bad part? Well, in a similar way, we're going to try something with the home itself, the big picture, where they happen to be living. There's some interesting metaphor symbolism there too. So if the house bears the plague, here's what you do. Verse 40, the priests shall command that they take away the stones in which the plague is, and that they shall cast them into an unclean place without the city. 
That's the equivalent of removing the diseased portion of the garment, but letting the rest stay, stay there. Remember President Nelson last conference talked about removing the debris from our lives. If there are stones that shouldn't be in this house, remove them. Replace them with better stones, keystones of your religion, corn, chief cornerstones of Jesus Christ, foundation stones of prophets and apostles. There's a lot of great material out there with which to rebuild, right? How about verse 41? He shall cause the house to be scraped within round about, and they shall pour out the dust that they scrape off without the city into an unclean place. This would be the building equivalent of washing the garment with water. Here we're washing the house. We're scraping down the dust and removing all of that. I mean, it is amazing the kind of filth that can build up with time. And to scrape it off, this is like exfoliating skin. You're doing it to your house now. Because I don't even want the devil's dust to cling to me. Let's get rid of it. Every last speck. Every crumb of corruption, if we're cleansing the house from leavened bread. In this case, the dust of debris, the dust of self-destruction, get it out. No wonder it talks about if you've been rejected by a city, then you, you cast off the dust from your feet. I don't want to have anything to do with that wickedness. And that's what's happening with his home. In 42, they shall take other stones and put them in the place of those stones, and he shall take other mortar and shall plaster the house. So not just new stones, like I described earlier, but even new mortar. This is like the, the straw in the mud bricks that the Israelites needed to make. This mortar will help keep it all together. And if I need better straw, if I need finer mortar to take these new stones and truly integrate them into my larger house, make them a, a foundational part of my life, spirituality that will really stick, I need a new, new plaster on the outside, a new covering. There, I removed my clothes. Now I'm putting new clothes on. Amazing, these changes. Then, 43 and 44, if the plague come again, I did everything I could. I thought it was sufficient the first time. But if it comes again and break out in the house, after that he hath taken away the stones, after he hath scraped the house, after it is plastered, then what do we do? The priest shall come and look, and behold, if the plague be spread in the house, it is a fretting leprosy in the house. It is unclean. We didn't remove it all. And this one might not be sufficient just to remove the unclean part. We might have to replace the whole. Sure enough, in verse 45, he shall break down the house, the stones of it, the timber thereof, and all the mortar of the house, and he shall carry them forth out of the city into an unclean place. So here's a complete change, a total move, an extreme makeover, we might call it. But I need to begin again. No wonder how the Lord asks people in Scripture to move so often. I'm trying to help you completely leave your old life behind. Verse 57 sums it all up. What's this for? to teach when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law of leprosy. As before, we must learn to discern, distinguish, separate right and wrong, darkness, light, clean, unclean. Now, 
Leviticus 15, we're going to still talk about those that are sick. This time, it's going to be bodily discharges. I know, so that sounds disgusting. Uh, issues of blood, we might call it, with an eye to the New Testament miracle. In 15.2, speak unto the children of Israel, say unto them, when any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue, he is unclean. You see, so, speaking of dividing lines, some things are supposed to stay inside of our body. Uh, and when they come out in ways that they weren't designed to, something's wrong here. Crossing certain lines is evident that something is amiss deeper down. So what do you do? Verse 4. Every bed whereon he lieth that hath the issue, it's unclean. Everything whereon he sitteth, that shall be unclean. Whosoever toucheth his bed, what do they do? Wash his clothes, bathe himself in water, be unclean until the even. Jump ahead to verse 11. Whomsoever he toucheth that hath the issue, and hath not rinsed his hands in water, he shall wash his hands and bathe himself in water, and be unclean until the even. Jump to 13. And when he hath an issue, is cleansed of his issue. Then he shall number to himself seven days for his cleansing, and wash his clothes and bathe his flesh in running water, and shall be clean. Those elements are pretty similar to what we saw at the end of the leper ritual. There's a lot of washing here. Specifically, hand washing, washing clothes, bathing the whole body in water, remaining unclean until the evening, staying outside the camp, separating. Do you see quarantining? Do you see isolation? Do you see washing and removing whatever was touched or contaminated potentially by the person that was unclean themselves? Now, again, that's great symbolism as far as the possible contagion of sin. But even if we just stick with the practical element here, a younger doctor named Dr. Russell M. Nelson once talked about these kinds of ritual purity laws and pointed out that far more than ritual purity, this is medical purity. This is cleanliness. And, and, and Dr. Nelson, Elder Nelson, President Nelson now, said if that one law had been kept, if, if this particle of the law of Moses had spread throughout Judaism, throughout Christianity, throughout Islam, throughout the world, innumerable lives would have been saved. If you think about most of human history, medical practice, well, needed a lot more practice. They had no clue what they were doing, really. And so surgeries took place upon the same disgusting bed or, or cloth where the previous surgery took place. And in many hospitals, doctors, surgeons would go straight from the cadaver to go deliver a new baby. And they wondered why infant mortality rates were so high. It wasn't until the mid-19th century, we're talking mid-1800s, that people started wondering, maybe that's not the best practice. Maybe they shouldn't use the same instruments on dead bodies as they do on the living Huh, maybe we should clear out some space and perform new surgeries in new locations or with new bedding, at least. Huh, maybe we should wash our hands. I don't know. What do you think? Again, germ theory is still off in the distance. And, but can you imagine if during the Civil War, for example, during any wars, if this law were kept, 
that, no, if there's an issue of blood, if there's a wound, don't touch it. Go wash it and then leave. Whatever you touch, let's leave that alone. Wash that. Wash your hands a lot through all of this. Like I said repeatedly, it's amazing how far ahead of our technology God's understanding really is. And things that he tells us that we assume are merely ceremonial with no practical value might have much more practical value than we imagined. Definitely the case here. And one more specific example, again with our eye to the woman of the issue of blood. Verse 19 and 20. If a woman have an issue and her issue in her flesh be blood, so think about the menstrual cycle, she shall be put apart seven days and whosoever toucheth her shall be unclean until the even. And everything that she lieth upon in her separation shall be unclean. Everything also that she sitteth upon shall be unclean. Now, that law wasn't even in place yet, but that's what Rachel was doing when Laban came into the tent and was looking for his household idols. Remember this weird story? And she's all, oh, sorry, it's the nature of woman is upon me uh, and I can't get up. Now, that might have been purely uh, practical. Uh, here, there's some practicality, too. Uh, but anything she touches is unclean. Worse, though, verse 25, if a woman have an issue of, of her blood many days out of the time of her separation, so this would be an abnormally long period of bleeding, but if it run beyond the time of her separation, then, sorry, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation. She shall be unclean. Now do you understand just how devastated this woman with the issue of blood would have been? Because as long as it lasts, you remain unclean. In so many other instances, where, oh, you touched something? Well, go wash and quarantine until tonight, to, until the even. For some, oh, seven days, and then you will have passed. But in this case, you're never clean. And for her, this issue lasted for 12 years. Can you imagine feeling less than, marginalized, cut off, even for practicality's sake, that was a hard year, and then some with COVID, of being isolated and quarantined. And for her, I just can't come back. And again, imagine her devastation and her hopelessness. Imagine her hope when she hears of Jesus, but imagine her fear of treading among the multitude. Imagine her euphoria when she finally feels healing come into her. And then her absolute devastation when, she, when he asks, who touched me? And she knows she has to come clean. Well, she was already clean, cleansed by, by Christ himself. And those 12 years could all be left behind her. Such an amazing story, especially when you understand the background here in Leviticus. Finally, then in verse 31, Thus shall ye separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, that they die not in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. Are you starting to see the theme over and over? Learn to discern, be able to distinguish, separate right from wrong. This isn't some mushy middle with moral relativism saying that everything's fine. No, there's absolute truth and we must be absolutely true to it. Chapter 16 then is another highlight in the book of Leviticus. One of the three chapters we were supposed to study this, <laughs> this week. It's the ritual of the Day of Atonement. 
I talked about this in our Easter lesson about coming boldly to the throne of grace. We'll see it spelled out right here. This is Yom Kippur. Yom means day. Kippur, it means atonement. It comes from kafar, which means to cover. So this is the ultimate day of covering, covering our nakedness, covering our sin. And of all the high holy days of the Jewish ritual calendar, and we'll see a bunch of them listed later on in Leviticus, this is the highest and holiest of them all. The most important day in the Jewish year was the Day of Atonement. The same should be true for us. Verse 2, the Lord says to Moses, Speak unto Aaron thy brother, that he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark, that he die not. For I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Some things are so sacred, they cannot be reduced to a daily experience. The, the daily nature, the repetitiveness will end up cheapening it too much. So, yes, we're going to do outer rituals day and night, right? The, the lambs being offered as the daily sacrifice. I, I hope that doesn't get old. Some things we need to do frequently, constant reminders. But some things, there's a contrary. Too often, not often enough. Well, there need to be both kinds. And so coming into the Holy of Holies, where I am, to where I will appear in the cloud before you, let's only do that once a year. We will do that on the Day of Atonement. It's going to become more clear than exactly what it takes to enter my presence. It will always require the atonement. Without it, there's no entrance, there's no passage. And even the infrequency of this might be important for us to wrestle with. Why aren't some spiritual experiences just more common? Why don't we more frequently feel that fire of faith? Well, there might be good reason for that. To give us something to look forward to, something to look back upon, Something to realize the sacredness of it. What makes gold so valuable, right? It's scarcity. It's the fact that it's so rare. We should treasure these kinds of atoning experiences. Well, one of the things they were supposed to do as part of their Day of Atonement ritual, some of it is in the tabernacle itself, like we'll see in a little bit, but something outside the tabernacle that everyone could see and, and witness was the scapegoat ritual, which is fascinating. Verse 7 through 11, he spells it out. He, high priest Aaron, shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat. And Aaron shall bring the goat upon which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement with him and to let him go for a scapegoat into the wilderness. Now, didn't we just see two identical offerings but that played out in completely opposite ways? Two birds for the leper? One is going to be killed and the other is going to fly free. Well, this is similar but with an, an, a really important difference. Two goats bring them. And we're going to cast lots. Again, there was nothing that said it needed to be one bird over the other. You were just as likely to die as the other. We're going to cast lots over these goats. One will be offered as a sacrifice, and the other will be the scapegoat 
Now, scapegoat has become a common word in English because of what we see here in Leviticus chapter 16. A scapegoat is just someone like, we're going to make him the guilty party, even if he's innocent. We're going to heap up all the blame on her. We just need somebody to, to fall on their sword for us. We need somebody to, to bear the blame. So that's the scapegoat. And this is literally the scapegoat. Now, 21 and 22 spells it out more, uh, more fully. Aaron shall lay both his hands upon the head of the live goat and confess over him all the iniquities of the children of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them upon the head of the goat and shall send him away by the hand of a fit man into the wilderness and the goat shall bear upon him all their iniquities unto a land not inhabited and he shall let go the goat in the wilderness. Now in those verses, he's describing what you do with a scapegoat. They already knew what to do with the other goat since it was just supposed to be part of the, the regular ritual sin offering that they all, well, by then are coming to understand. Now, I struggled with this one for a long time trying to make sense of, okay, um, which one's Jesus and which one's me? Um, because isn't that how it works? Christ takes my place and so I get to go free because he took my, hit my sins upon him. Sin and death wait a minute. See, this is where it got confusing for me because I'm like, they both sound sacrificial in a way. Uh, one of those goats is killed as the sin offering. So that, that must be Jesus. Yeah, can, and I get to live. I get to go free. But wait a minute. The scapegoat is the one that bears all the blame and the iniquity and gets cast out of Israel as a result. That sounds like Jesus. So I must be, wait, which goat am I? Well, that's the beauty. You're neither one, and yet you're both. Or to flip around the imagery, Jesus is both. Now, how does that work? Well, think of it in this way. In some ways, both goats had, a, had the better end of the bargain. Because on the one hand, one goat got to live, and the other had to die. But flip it around. One goat got to go to God. The other goat was cast out of the community. Huh. Here's another way to look at it. What were the two things that Christ had to overcome for all of us? Sin and death. Ah. One goat has to face death and overcome it. The other goat has all of our sins laid upon it and is cast out. Death, physical death is the separation of body and spirit. Spiritual death is the separation of us from God or of us from each other. And so we're seeing both of these deaths played out right before us. And Jesus is willing to suffer both on our behalf. To me, that was what made the biggest breakthrough of just realizing what if Jesus is both goats? and that he would die so that I might live. And conversely, that he would bear my sins and take upon himself all the blame and be cast out of Israel to be fully and painfully alone so that I could stay and become a gift to God, to be here in the midst of Israel 
there's something profound about the scapegoat ritual. It's one worth pondering on for a long time. And the fact that Jesus took the worst of both so that we could have the best of both, again, speaks volumes of, of him. Now, the next part of the ritual is this coming boldly unto the throne of grace we talked about at Easter. In verse 13, he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony, that he die not. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Remember the incense altar right before the veil, the prayers of the saints ascending, filling the house of God with a sweet savor, that perfume that you'd only smell there in the presence of God. Well, it's on that one day, the Day of Atonement, that that one man, the high priest, is able to part the veil and enter the presence of God. Powerful moment. He's coming boldly to the throne of grace, the mercy seat, the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. But one out of detail here, he's putting blood on the mercy seat eastward and also sprinkling blood before the mercy seat. Now again, we need to know our cardinal directions here. Remember the tabernacle is facing east and so you're walking west to go into it. So as you pass the veil, pass those cherubim, those angels that stand as sentinels, you enter the presence of God and there on the east of the of the mercy seat. Well, first of all, before the mercy seat, so this is even further east than, than the eastern edge, sprinkle the blood seven times. My prayers have ascended. I mean, all the way through, I've offered sacrifice. I've been cleansed by the laver. I've come past the showbread, past the bread of the presence and the faces, past the light of the Lord, past the the prayers of the saints, past the angels that stand as sentinels, right before me I will sprinkle seven times the blood. This completeness, this perfection, this totality, the new creation, there it is before the altar, and then right on the eastern edge of the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the side facing me, there's one more daub of blood. And to think of what's happening here, I get the sense of the Lord himself blazing the trail before us, opening the way, and that every step, this man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, who bled from every pore, we are seeing evidence of that as we come boldly to the throne of his grace. This day of atonement Remember at the crucifixion of Christ, with blood spattered all the way from Gethsemane through Calvary, this Passover lamb on his cedar wood with his hyssop plant, Passover taking place before them all over again. And for at that moment of his scapegoat ritual, as he is being cast out of Israel, for our sins, as he is succumbing to death as the sacrifice. On that day, at that moment, as his heart is torn apart, so is the veil of the temple, from top to bottom. Because today is the day of atonement, and from now on, every day is atoned for. 
because not just the high priest will enter, but the high priest of good things to come has, has opened the passage for us all so that we too can come boldly to the throne of grace. To see verse 16, what's the priest doing here? Finally able to enter, he is making an atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel, because of their transgressions in all their sins. And so shall he do for the tabernacle of the congregation that remaineth among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Interesting the way he puts that. It almost suggests that the tabernacle doesn't belong among us. Or at least we don't belong around the tabernacle. We're too unclean and it's too holy. But on this day of atonement, this great high priest says it's okay. I will even make an atonement for the tabernacle, for this holy place. Why? So that it can remain among you in the midst of their uncleanness. I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And so I need a refuge, I need a tabernacle, a place where I can safely dwell. But on that day of atonement, how oh, it's a reminder that through my blood you can become clean. And I can afford to stay among you. I'll remain. In verse 17, there shall be no man in the tabernacle of the congregation when he, Aaron, goeth in to make an atonement in the holy place until he come out and have made an atonement for himself and for his household, and for all the congregation of Israel. No man with him. Sound like Gethsemane? Could you not watch with me one hour? Sound like Calvary? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sound like Jesus treading the winepress alone. The winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God, and none were with him. Aaron will embody that level of loneliness on the Day of Atonement. In verse 31, it shall be a Sabbath of rest unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls by a statute forever. Now that's an odd juxtaposition. It was a Sabbath of rest. I'm supposed to be taking it easy, right? No, rest from worldly cares perhaps, but to truly rest from worldly wickedness, there might be some affliction of soul that's necessary. In the Jewish calendar, this high holy day was a day of fasting, of prayer. And fasting is a way to afflict your soul. Am I right? A day to realize that though the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, but I need to lean into the spirit's willingness instead of the flesh's weakness. Jesus did. And so to see this, afflict your souls. Elder Maxwell said that confession, we saw that earlier in Leviticus, is a way to scour the soul. There's an affliction of the soul. The real repentance, day of atonement, was a day of repentance. Day of atonement was a day of fasting. Even the way Isaiah describes fasting in chapter 58, listen to this. Wherefore have we fasted, say they, and thou seest not? Wherefore have we afflicted our soul, and thou takest no knowledge? Later in Isaiah 58, he says it again. Is this such a fast that I have chosen, a day for man to afflict his soul? Oh, it has to be so much more than just going hungry. It has to be something far deeper. And for this day of atonement to be like that, this repentance, this realization of what we've done and what Christ has done for us, 
This needs to be that kind of a Sabbath. Then we see in 33 and 34, the end of this chapter, he shall make an atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make an atonement for the tabernacle of the congregation, for the altar, and he shall make an atonement for the priests and for all the people of the congregation. And this shall be an everlasting statute unto you to make an atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. From top to bottom, high to low, outside to inside, the entire tabernacle, the congregation, people, you name it, they are covered by this Yom Kippur, this day of covering, this day of atonement. It's a, an everlasting statute because the atonement is infinite and eternal. I sense both adjectives in those final verses. Infinite, covering everything. Eternal, it's an everlasting statute. And so are the results of the atonement of Jesus Christ. Chapter 17, we see more of this atonement through the shedding of blood. And if I could summarize all of Leviticus in just one verse, it's this one, Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Blood, as shed in every one of these sacrifices, Blood, the blood of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. Blood is life. We call it the life blood. Well, there's redundancy. Blood is the living water for living beings. If you think about living water and a tree of life, that water has to find ways to get to every cell. And so you look at the back of a leaf and just trace the veins as they go. And to think about the human body, that there has to be some way for blood to reach everything. There has to be some way for atonement to get into the deepest cracks and corners. Not a cell can be without it. It's what will deliver the good and take away the bad. And so that one verse is all you need from Leviticus 17. Life is in blood and atonement is in blood and that blood belongs to Jesus. It's that blood that makes the difference. And Leviticus 18 focuses on being different. Verses 2 through 5, I am the Lord your God. After the doings of the land of Egypt wherein ye dwelt, shall ye not do. That's past. Now how about future? And after the doings of the land of Canaan, whither I bring you, shall ye not do. Neither shall ye walk in their ordinances. Ye shall do my judgments and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Can we see the commandments of God in that light? They're from him. They are him. They're his. We're his. And so if I want to be like him, I need to do things his way. Not the old Egyptian way, not the new Canaanite way, but no, the way of the Lord. And he's drawing lines and setting up boundaries and establishing discipline for his true disciples. And that will make us different. We're going to eat different things. We're going to do different things. We're going to wear different things. We're going to think different things. Because we want to be different in order to make a difference in the world. That's what God intends for his Peculiar people.
and his strange work. In verse 24 and 25, he repeats himself, Defile not ye yourselves in any of these things, because he's listed a bunch of things they need to avoid. For in all these, the nations are defiled, which I cast out before you. And the land is defiled. Therefore, I do visit the iniquity thereof upon it, and the land itself vomiteth out her inhabitants. Now, how's that for a graphic visual aid? <laughs> a strong mental image. The land is vomiting them out? Well, he wasn't going to bring the children of Israel back into the promised land until the iniquity of the Amorites was full. And it's been filling to the point it's now ready to spew out of their iniquitous mouths. And the land is going to spew the, these iniquitous people out of itself, making room for cleanliness and consecrated people. The way he says it there is, is fascinating. You can't do that because that's what everybody else does. And if there's one thing Leviticus is trying to focus on, it's, it's being different. It's being holy. It's belonging to the Lord. And what he said at the beginning of this chapter, he will say over and over again through the, the rest of the book of Leviticus. Back at the end of verse 5, he concluded this intro to these extra laws with, I am the Lord. And he will repeat this so many times from here on out that if you sat down and just read, you'd probably get tired of seeing it. In this chapter, verse 6, for example, he says, no incest, I am the Lord. Verse 21, no child sacrifice, I am the Lord. And throughout it, no homosexual behavior, no bestiality, no sexual sin of any kind. Why? Verse 30, commit not any one of these abominable customs which were committed before you and that you defile not yourselves therein. I am the Lord your God. Even that he would call them abominable customs. Oh, that's how Egyptians do it. That's how Canaanites do it. We'll see later. That's how the Babylonians do it. So let it go. Remove all the dust, every crumb of corruption, and be clean, be holy, be different, be mine. I am the Lord, and you are the Lord's people. And we need to, to wrap our heads and hearts around that. There's willing-heartedness. There's wise-heartedness as well. Like I said, from this moment forward, he will keep repeating that. And nowhere does he do it more often than in chapter 19. Uh, chapter 19, like so much of Leviticus, is law. This is the church handbook of instructions, right? This is the priesthood manual. This is how you're supposed to live your life and perform your sacrifices and everything else. And so like the laws we saw in Exodus, uh, coming down from Sinai, Ten Commandments, and then a bunch of laws for the chapters that followed. Well, here's a big, long repetition of many of them, but emphasizing over and over who is giving these laws to them. God himself. So look at verse 1 and 2 of Leviticus 19. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, Ye shall be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. See, it's not just the high priest that needs to have holiness to the Lord across his forehead. We all need to have that. And how do we get there? By remembering him. By always remembering him. So verse 3, Honor your parents and keep the Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Verse 4, no idolatry. I am the Lord your God. 9 and 10, provide for the poor and the stranger. Leave the corners of your fields and the gleanings of your harvest. I am the Lord your God. Verse 12, honor the name of God. I am the Lord. 14, care for those with disabilities and special needs. I am the Lord. 
16. Don't gossip. I am the Lord. 18. Don't avenge or hold a grudge. And here's why. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. This isn't just a New Testament principle. This is an Old Testament command. In 25, let your orchards develop strength before you begin harvesting fruit. I am the Lord, your God. 28, don't cut your flesh for the dead, some forms of self-mortification, and don't print any marks upon you. Sound like tattooing? I am the Lord. Verse 30, ye shall keep my Sabbaths, there's sacred time, and reverence my sanctuary, there's sacred space. I am the Lord. In 31, no sorcery, no necromancy. I am the Lord. In 32, respect your elders. I am the Lord. 33 and 34, care for strangers, care for foreigners. That should come easily if you have real empathy. Thou shalt love him as thyself, he says, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. And then the reminder, I am the Lord, your God. 36, no dishonest business dealings. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt with all of its oppression and unfair business dealings. And finally, 37. Therefore shall ye observe all my statutes and all my judgments and do them. I am the Lord. From start to finish throughout Leviticus 19, and in some ways start to finish throughout the book of Leviticus as a whole, do you know who I am? And do you know whose you are? I'm God. I am a God of holiness. And for you to become my people, then you must become holy even as I am holy. Come to know me and then live your life as a reflection of that relationship. Take some time. Pour over the specifics of Leviticus 19. But really focus on the exclamation point God gives at the end of every commandment. I am the Lord. And then keep your eye out for it from this point forward. Now the last handful of chapters uh, in the book of Leviticus build on what we just saw there of holiness to the Lord. Keep it etched in gold on your forehead. Chapter 20 speaks of being clean and being different, which we've seen a lot of so far. In verse 7 and 8, sanctify yourselves therefore and be ye holy for I am the Lord your God, and ye shall keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord which sanctify you. Can you picture that synergy between us and the Lord? Us accepting his grace, him sanctifying us. That great verse in section 88, verse 74. Purify your hearts and cleanse your hands and your feet before me. That's our part. That I may make you clean. That's his part. No amount of washing and cleansing on our part will truly make us clean. But if we will come to Christ with broken hearts and contrite spirits, I washed myself as much as I could, then he will truly sanctify us, as only he can. Also in chapter 20, he describes the, Beth, the death penalty for so many of these sins. This is capital punishment. He is serious. Ask Nadab and Abihu, right? But then in 23 and 24, Again, this reminder, ye shall not walk in the manners of the nation. Those abominable customs we saw. It's, it's their manners. It's, it's their culture. It's their assumptions, their premises, the games that they tend to play. Don't walk in those, which I cast out before you. For they committed all these things 
all these capital crimes. Therefore I abhorred them. But I have said unto you, ye shall inherit their land, and I will give it unto you to possess it, a land that floweth with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, which have separated you from other people. That holiness, that separation, we have to be different to make a difference. And it's interesting here, we'll see this later when we get to Judges and, and Joshua, Joshua and Judges. The conquest of Canaan was a bloody affair. And that's, that's a hard one for us to swallow. But if we understand that these were capital crimes being committed and God would, would execute his judgment upon Israel just as swiftly as he would upon the people of Canaan. These are laws that he holds sacred and that we must as well. First Nephi 17 is a great place to study this. We'll see it again when we get to those other, those other books. Uh, that if they had been righteous, then there would have been no cause for condemnation. But here's where the condemnation really comes through. We, they just weren't different. And unless you're different, then you'll be treated the same as they are as far as consequences of sin. I love what Elder Packer once said, that the distance between the world and a church not set on its course must steadily increase. Think about the Lord's standards and the world's standards. And the Lord's standards are always higher than the, the world's standards. And what happens over time? The world's standards keep getting lower and lower. Now, the scary thing would be for the Lord's standards or the church's standards, church culture, our manners, our customs, for them to decline right along with the world. Now, the, the danger is the whole time we could pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, we're so much higher than worldly wickedness. Oh, we're different. Well, yeah, but if your standards today are no different than the world's standards a generation ago, they just happen to be better than the world standards today. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at with this slow decline? No wonder Elder Packer's statement. The distance will steadily increase because the Lord is holding us to his standards as the world is getting further and further away from standards at all. And so we were a little different back in the 50s. When you, I mean, you go watch Leave it to Beaver and they might as well have been a Latter-day Saint family. But now you watch quote-unquote family sitcoms today and yikes. And are we different? Are we increasingly different? <laughs> I joke with my students that you thought we were strange before. You ain't, you ain't seen nothing yet. Someday we'll be freaks as far as the world is concerned. And yet that makes us faithful as far as God is concerned. Beware of following the customs and the manners of nations that don't know any better. And be different. Be holy just like the Lord is. As he says in verse 25 and 6, Ye shall therefore put difference between clean beasts and unclean, between unclean fowls and clean. Ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have severed you. That means I set you apart. I separated. I distinguished. I've severed you from other people, that ye should be mine now, again, there's contraries to prove here, too. There are boundaries as well as a sense of belonging. There is exclusiveness and inclusiveness as well. There are moats as well as drawbridges. There are walls as well as doors. It's like the Jaredite barges. They had two holes and two corks to plug them. You've got to let air in, but you can't let in the water. 
So be wise, be discerning. Some lines we need to guard with incredible strictness. Others we can be open and, and share and have shared with us the kinds of things that, that the world at its finest, at its best, has to offer. There's plundering the riches of Egypt all over again. But it is scary to live in a world that has oh, mess, missed the point on this, on both extremes. And throughout much of human history has drawn fixed lines that should never be crossed. Even when those lines may be arbitrary. And racial lines or national lines that have separated people that shouldn't have been separated. On the other hand, erasing other lines entirely that, that are meant to hold. I'll let you ponder the specific examples of which lines should exist and which ones shouldn't. But those are things we need to learn to distinguish. In chapter 21, we then see laws for the priests. This is their handbook after all. Verse 6 and 8, They, the priests, shall be holy unto their God, and not profane the name of their God. For the offerings of the Lord made by fire, better not be strange fire, and the bread of their God, that showbread, they do offer. Therefore they shall be holy. Thou shalt sanctify him therefore, for he offereth the bread of thy God. He shall be holy unto thee. For I, the Lord, which sanctify you, am holy. Remember that famous phrase, Be clean, ye that bear the vessels of the Lord. That's what they're being asked to do. If we're going to serve Christ, we must become more Christ-like in the process and strive to be as holy as the God of holiness that we serve. In verse 12, the priest must never profane the sanctuary of his God, for the crown of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. We saw earlier that restriction that some things you just can't do and some lines you just can't cross because the anointing oil is upon you. Here it's even said more powerfully, the crown of the anointing oil is upon you. You're a kingdom of priests. You're an holy nation. You must be different. In verse 17, speak unto Aaron, saying, Whosoever he be of thy seed in their generations that hath any blemish, let him not approach to offer the bread of his God. Now, offerings without blemish, therefore, must be given by offerers without blemish. Now, is he asking for perfection here? This is hard. Here he's speaking specifically of physical blemishes. The, the lamb had to be without blemish, and the priest at the altar has to be without blemish as well, which sounds really harsh in our day, as it should. We've gotten better with time, okay, in, in some areas, worse in time with others. But in terms of our caring, to look past physical deformities, uh, to see handicaps and disabilities, and simply call them special needs, which is what they are. Oh, that's a beautiful change and progress. But in this case, for ancient Israel, the priest himself must be physically whole to help embody the spiritual wholeness that God is trying to convey to, to each of us. Now, verse 22 and 23 soften things a bit. It speaks of those priests with blemishes and says that he shall eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy. Only he shall not go in unto the veil, nor come nigh unto the altar, because he hath a blemish, 
that he profane not my sanctuaries, for I, the Lord, do sanctify them. Now, the Lord is drawing a fine line of distinction in that verse. He's differentiating between officiating and participating in these rituals, in these sacrifices. And for a Levite, a priest, if you are going to officiate, then physically you have to match the sacrifice itself as far as no blemish, no outer abnormality or deformity or inability, which seems harsh in our day, like I said. But as far as participation is concerned, there are no restrictions there. Well, worthiness would be one. But in terms of physical things, no, there is no restriction placed upon you. Whether it's the holiest sacrifices or the more common where the community can feast with you, you can eat it all. You can eat the, the heave shoulder and the wave breast and everything in between. Every handful of flour mingled with oil. You're a Levite. You're a priest. You're part of the community. And since priesthood was never about officiators anyway, it was always about the recipients, I hope that we can see ourselves in, in this passage even of just knowing that God can see past the outward into the inward and give us every good gift. Even if you don't seem to fit the mold through no choice of your own. Chapter 22 continues to give more laws to these priests. Things like verse 3, Whosoever he be of all your seed among your generations, that goeth unto the holy things, which the children of Israel hallow unto the Lord, having his uncleanness upon him, that soul shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. You see, this was not outward deformities. This is inner uncleanliness. And we must be worthy to partake of the sacrament. We must be worthy to officiate in priesthood ordinances, in temple ordinances. There, 21, Leviticus 21, compared to Leviticus 22, that's very different things we're talking about, outward versus inward. Uh, again in chapter 22, this time verse 23, either a bullock or a lamb that hath anything superfluous or lacking in his parts, that mayest thou offer for a free will offering, but for a vow it shall not be accepted. Again, some sacrifices have higher standards than others. And what specific kind of animal is required for, for various ones? When it comes to a free will offering, I'm just trying to give God something, provide for the priests, help other people, rejoice together. Great. Even if, there's, if it's not a perfectly unblemished animal, that's good enough for those kinds of things. I love the way it's described. Anything superfluous, it's, I don't know, it's got something that it's not supposed to have. That's weird. Or the flip side, it's lacking in any of its parts. It's missing something. That describes most of us. I've, I've said it so often as we're proving contrary, staying in the Goldilocks is really hard because we tend to have too much of one and not enough of the other. One attribute we have in superfluous amounts, like, whoa, there's too much justice there, careful. Or other attributes we are lacking in parts of it, like, ooh, not enough mercy over here. Uh, reminds me of the story that, that Sister Holland shared that when she and Elder Holland were about to get married, Sister Holland started getting cold feet, which shocks me. Who would not want to marry Elder Holland, right? Uh, Sister Holland, though, went to her dad and was kind of freaking out and said, I don't know if I should marry Jeff. I'm scared. And, and her dad just looked at her and said, Pat, 
you have to marry Jeff Holland. You two are absolutely perfect for each other. And she's feeling reassured. It's like, oh, really, Dad? You think so? What do you like about him? And Dad smiles in his special way and says to his daughter, Pat, you guys are perfect for each other because the rocks in his head will fill the holes in yours. And she went away a little bit chastened. <laughs> but great advice. We all have rocks in our head on some things and holes in our heads in others. There are parts of us that are superfluous and parts that are lacking. Oh, and God puts up with us. But he also asks us to grow up in him and become something better. In your free will offerings, give the best you got. But to truly make vows with God that are acceptable to him, then become worthy, become whole. Nothing, nothing too much sticking out or too little sticking in. Let's become whole in God. In verse 30, he warns them not to leave any leftovers after a sacrifice. It's all for him and we're all in in it. And then he ends with that common phrase, I am the Lord. In 31, therefore shall ye keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. In 32 and 33, neither shall ye profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel I am the Lord, which hallow you, that brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Honor the Lord's holiness, and he will make us holy. It's like what he said in Doctrine and Covenants section 60. For I am able to make you holy. He can do that because he is that. He is holiness and and wants to share that holiness with us. We already saw that. Touch the sacred things. They make you more sacred. Our, our wickedness does not contaminate him. His holiness sanctifies us. Chapter 23, then, he teaches us about the feasts of the Jewish calendar. We already saw the Day of Atonement and how they were supposed to to worship that day, the various rituals they participated in. Chapter 23 includes Yom Kippur, but adds the others as well. It begins, The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which ye shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. And then throughout the chapter, he lists them. We don't see here all the specific things they're supposed to do on each holiday. Now, those are scattered elsewhere throughout Scripture, and there's lots of great places online that you can study each one of them. But here's his list in chapter 23. Verse 3, he mentions the Sabbath of rest. So there's Shabbat, the Sabbath, takes place every single week, the frequent ones. And then the infrequent ones, verse 5, the Lord's Passover, that's Pesach, the Passover that we studied in the book of Exodus. Verse 6, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in Hebrew, that's called Hag HaMatzot, which, again, Matzot is the matzah, the unleavened bread that they eat for that week following Passover. Verse 10 and 16 mentions the first fruits of your harvest and 50 days. So there's Shavuot, which is the Feast of Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, that's 50 days, or the Feast of First Fruits, it's also called. Verse 24 speaks of a memorial of blowing of trumpets. And that's the Jewish New Year. 
You take these ram's horns, these shofars, and blow them, these trumpet blasts that send out the old year and invite in the new. In Hebrew, it's called Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is how I heard it when I was a kid. Rosh means head. Shana is year. So Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year, the Jewish New Year. Verse 27 is the Day of Atonement. So there's Yom Kippur, the Day of Covering, Day of Atonement we already studied. 34 and 39, the Feast of Tabernacles, as well as a time that gathered in the fruit of the land. So there's Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, also known as the Feast of Ingathering, when they bring in that food. And then the chapter ends, 44, Moses declared unto the children of Israel the feasts of the Lord. Now, as Latter-day Saints, we don't do quite as much with a ritual calendar. Other churches do a lot more with it, uh, whether it's reading the lectionary and every week you go through. In some ways, Come Follow Me has become our lectionary uh, week by week as we study scripture. Uh, Christmas, of course, and Easter, of course. We have uh, General Conference in April and October. Uh, their Pioneer Day, <laughs> there are times in our year that we remember things. But to think of the Jewish calendar, that's what it's for. It's a time to remember the incredible things God has done for them in their past and will yet do for them in the future. Ritual and calendar is shelf number one. We have proved him in days that are past, and I have all this evidence of the miraculous hand of God in my life that prepares me for shelf two and shelf three with blessings forthcoming. I said before, there is sacred space like the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. Well, there is also sacred time. And the, this calendar helps us organize and order our lives around this. There needs to be flexibility and freedom and summer vacation, if you want to call it that. But there are also days and times and seasons and months and years that help us organize our lives and pattern it after the template and temple of sacred time and sacred space. Chapter 24 again reminds us of the strictness of the law. We've seen plenty of those. Verse 10 and 11, the son of an Israelitish woman whose father was an Egyptian. So here's a man with mixed faith parents. He went out among the children of Israel and the son of the Israelitish woman and a man of Israel strove together in the camp. Some kind of fight broke out. And the Israelitish woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. Now, this is where the rubber hits the road. Only a couple of times in the book of Leviticus has narrative come through the midst of all of this explaining of the law. We saw that with the death of Nadab and Abihu. Oh, God's serious about his law. Well, now we get to see it again with this, this Israelite man who blasphemed the name of the God of Israel. Was he too much like his dad with Egyptian customs and manners? And not enough like his mom? Is he a true Israelite or is he just Israelitish? That, uh, you know, I'm a kind of a, an Easter and Christmas kind of a disciple. I'm maybe a, a Sukkot and Shavuot, but uh, Day of Atonement, that's a day to afflict the soul. No thanks. I'm, I'm again, Israel in name only and just Israelitish as far as my standards or behavior is concerned. But here again, we're going to see, amidst all of this theoretical discussion of law, now there's a chance to make it actual. 
If you believe these things so that you do them, will they do them? Especially these capital crimes? Well, verse 10 through 14, they brought him unto Moses. So what do we do in situations like this? Well, let's involve a higher authority. Let's not just take the law into our own hands. Let's make sure that we know what to do here and therefore go to, to Moses himself. What else do they do? They put him in ward, so he's basically arrested. We're not going to jump to conclusions, but let's confine him for now. That the mind of the Lord might be showed them. So we're seeking not just the high authority of Moses, but the highest authority of God himself. We want to know what God thinks about it. Again, don't jump to conclusions. It's innocent until proven guilty. And in this particular case, like we saw with Aaron and his other sons, oh, how much justice, how much mercy. We're seeking God's perfect judgment on this to strike the proper balance. Well, what happens next? The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, there's quarantine, and let all that heard him, the witnesses, lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. Whoa, so this is a capital crime. Will mercy rob justice? It can't. But the enforcement of law depends upon the community accepting and acting upon that law. The moment we no longer enforce law, then law has no authority. And might as well get rid of it, change it. That's often how we do it. But in this case, with the law being so young, so new, so fresh, and so straight from the mouth of God himself, we have to honor this. If the law does not, and that's why it's the witnesses come out, and the whole congregation come out and stone him. You're part of this. There's collective guilt. Well, there's collective punishment here. And the moment that law no longer embodies the collective conscience, that law no longer holds any weight. And what results is lawlessness, moral relativism, social anarchy. Oh, everyone becoming a law unto themselves. And I worry we do see a little too much of that in our time. And you might even consider it a misplaced mercy. We've overcorrected from an overly strict justice from before. We have to learn to balance the two. And as the Lord says, verse 20, breach for breach, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he hath caused a blemish in a man, so shall it be done to him again. We saw that back in Exodus. And in some ways, this is how we define, this is the oversimplification of the law of Moses is that. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Which again, from our angle, looks barbaric. But from an Egyptian angle of no justice, at least having justice is a huge step in the right direction. We've gone from outer darkness to telestial. Or maybe we could say telestial is no law, terrestrial is law. And celestial is perhaps not even needing law because we're simply living the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's who we are. And we want to be as holy as he is. And so to get there, to start building some momentum to climb Mount Sinai, we have to have law and there has to be justice. So we're going to start with that. To come up to this level, we require justice. To get beyond it, we will begin to start introducing mercy. And the highest level, we know perfectly how to balance the two. I mean, as I've pondered this, because it's interesting to see Jesus 
when he meets the woman taken in adultery. It's kind of this moment in the New Testament, what we see here in the Old. Well, the law says we have to stone her. It's capital crime, right? But what do you say? And so now the scribes and Pharisees are trying to, to put Jesus between a rock and a hard place. Or in his case, between a rock, the law of Moses, and a soft place, his own heart. And how does justice and mercy personified balance the two? Well, first he honors justice. He realizes what she's done is wrong. He warns her against that. Go and sin no more. This is sin. I'm calling you out on it. But he also honors mercy to say, I don't condemn you. At least not right now. You haven't had any time to repent and come to your senses. You were caught in the very act and then dragged here at the temple in the early morning. I cannot make you clean. You haven't, you haven't changed yet. I can't pronounce you whole or forgiven. You haven't had a chance to repent. So how do I navigate justice and mercy? I give you time and opportunity to change your ways, to come up into line with the demands of justice. But mercy will give you the time to do that. We talked about this, what, two years ago with, the, with King Noah and the wicked priests, that there's this line separate, this gap separating beliefs from behaviors, right? This is what I know I should do. Here's the law, but here's my life. Here's my beliefs down. Here's my behaviors. And there's this gap between them. And the gap is filled with guilt and filled with sin. And nobody wants to feel that, that guilt. So what do we do with the guilt gap? In, among the priests of Noah, they were like, oh, just forget the gap. Don't worry about the law. Either we're not going to worry about it and just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Or we'll give some token offerings, to the, the, the ceremonial law of Moses. And that'll justify us for totally thrashing the moral law of Moses. Good enough, right? We're going to take our standards and bring them down into line with our behaviors. And that's tragic. But at least it eliminates the guilt gap. Okay? King, uh, Abinadi, meanwhile, was saying, I see where you're going, and I actually like your goal. I want to eliminate the guilt gap, too. But my way actually works. Uh, it's not some virtual reality I'm forcing upon people. Instead, I'm bringing them up to the reality of God, which includes repentance. So this guilt gap, it has to stay. But Christ will fill the guilt gap with grace. For him, it's also the grace gap. And that allows both lines to hold long enough for you to move your behaviors up into line with your beliefs. I really hope that makes sense. There's something incredibly powerful there. Because if it's all justice and no mercy, then I can't handle the gap at all. And I will immediately pass judgment and, and swift justice and immediate condemnation. And, and I'm going to stone you the moment that you're thrown at the feet of Jesus at the temple. And now there's no gap, no guilt, we're good. But there was no mercy there. Well, our society has overcorrected and said, then let's not have any justice. And all mercy with no justice is just eliminating that top line entirely and making everything relative and there's no absolute truth and you do you and there's no sin, no punishment, therefore no guilt. And everybody can feel good however they happen to be living their lives. No standard to fall short of. Again, that doesn't work. And so what does the Lord do with this gap? He honors justice and he honors mercy. He fills the gap with grace and, and allows us to grow up in him 
until we can keep his law. Ancient Israel isn't there yet. Justice is a new concept. So that's the one God will teach them first. Raising kids, you learn that you have to start with justice and then introduce mercy. If you start with, mer with mercy, justice never gets a word in edgewise. So he's trying to, to raise them well. It'll be another thousand years before Jesus can really lean into the direction of, of the mercy that he's always felt. Again, we saw hints of it with Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the rest of the family. Last couple thoughts. Chapter 25. This is a chapter for Sabbath years and Jubilee years. It's beautiful. To, again, part of this calendar, but now we're going beyond years, the, the calendar year into seeing larger spaces of sacred time. Chapter 25, verse 3. Six years thou shalt sow thy field, and six years thou shalt prune thy vineyard, and gather in the fruit thereof. But in the seventh year shall be a, a Sabbath of rest unto the land, a Sabbath for the Lord. Thou shalt neither sow thy field nor prune thy vineyard. Now, it made sense on a weekly basis, right? Six days work and then seventh day of rest. And six days of manna, and I'll double the manna on the day before so you can make it through your Sabbath. Same thing's happening here, but now it's a full year. Six years of work and then a year to let the land rest for crying out loud. Remember Adam and Eve, they were meant to keep the garden, to dress the garden, not to exploit the garden, to overproduce the garden, to end up destroying the garden. Yes, ecology and environmentalism are part of our theology. And we are stewards of the earth. With dominion over it, yes, but a dominion that we owe to God and will have to return and report on to Him. And so be careful about overworking yourself, but also careful about overworking the land. Interesting, God is concerned about that. Again, this has a very practical purpose as far as lay, allowing land to lie fallow and replenish some of its nutrients. We don't want a dust bowl in ancient Israel like we had in the Western United States. And so be better than that. He adds another wrinkle in verse 20 and 21. If ye shall say, what shall we eat the seventh year? Behold, we shall not sow nor gather in our increase, which is a legitimate concern. Wait, no farming on the seventh year? That's the year I want to be a farmer, right? I get a whole year of rest, a vacation. No, here's how, what the Lord says in 21. I will command my blessing upon you in the sixth year, and it shall bring forth fruit for three years. This is like the manna all over again. I'll give you enough on the sixth day to get you through the seventh. In this case, I'll give you enough in those six years of work to get you through the seventh and eighth and ninth as you're waiting for more harvests to come in. You just got to trust me on this. It's not just taking care of the earth. It's taking care of your own finances. It's living within your means. It's not pushing your standard of living to constantly keep up with a rising level of income. It's give yourself some wiggle room. If you get a raise in pay, great. You don't have to raise your, your lifestyle. Instead, you can lay up for a rainy day. You can provide for those in need. God will get you through it. But be careful about taking that raise on the sixth year and spending it all. Eating it all up, because that's going to be a hungry year seven. And probably a hungry year eight as you get back under your feet. Verse 8 and 9, 
Thou shalt also number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee. Seven times seven years. Remember we talked about day of Pentecost, a feast of weeks. Seven times seven weeks. Well, now seven times seven years. And the space of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then what do you do on the next year? Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. The day of atonement shall ye make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. So yes, this whole 50th year will be a year of rejoicing. But what's the actual day we're going to celebrate? Well, what's the highest and holiest day of the year? Day of atonement. Do it then. Sound the trumpets that 50, every 50 days of atonement, the 50th one will be such a day of rejoicing. A feast of weeks that's become a feast of years and every half century. Oh, declare atonement on a level unseen for the last generation or two. In verse 10, it's described, Ye shall hallow the 50th year and proclaim liberty through all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you. And ye shall return every man unto his possession, and ye shall return every man unto his family. There's the ultimate day of atonement, the jubilee year. If someone's in debt to you, forgive them. If you're holding someone in bondage, let them go free. If you took over someone else's land, give it back to them. Everything made wrong, whether because of you or because of them. These are even rightful debts that are owed. Oh, remember the Lord covers even the ignorant sin, even the unintentional accident. He covers it all. And on the 50th year, you should do likewise. It's interesting that in 1880, the church was 50 years old, uh, organized in 1830. And by 1880, John Taylor is the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Brigham Young had passed away three years before, but a new first presidency still hasn't been organized when 1880 dawns. But at the April General Conference, President Taylor and his fellow members of the Quorum of the Twelve pronounced a jubilee year for the church, 50 years since the church has been formally organized. The restoration sweeping across the earth, the stone cut out of the mountain without hands beginning to fill it. And among other things, what did they do? You see, there was so much immigration from Europe and elsewhere to come to gather to Zion. And there was a thing called the Perpetual Emigration Fund, where people could contribute, have this fund, and then people could borrow from it to be able to pay for their journey across the ocean or across the United States to get to, to Zion. But that means they owed this money because it was meant to be perpetual. That way you pay it back and then it can keep, you pay it, it's paying it forward, not just paying it back. Someone else can then participate and someone else and someone else and so on and so on. The challenge was if you were so poor that you needed help from the perpetual emigration fund, and yes, there's a perpetual education fund now. But back then, if you were that poor and you needed that help, then it was going to be a tall order for you to be able to repay it anytime soon. You started with nothing and you were coming here with nothing and it takes a while to go from nothing to something. And they struggled. By the time the year 1880 rolled around, over $1.6 million, that's a lot now, but that was astronomical back in those days, 1.6 million was owed by the poor members of the church 
to repay their perpetual emigration fund. And what did the Quorum of the Twelve decide to do on that Jubilee year? We're going to take half of it and just forgive it. And it's not half of everybody, it's the poorest half of the saints. Some of you we know can pay this. And the church itself was heavily in debt. The church was struggling. All of the anti-polygamy persecution and legislation, the church was in a rough place financially itself and would be for another few decades. But that's the Jubilee year. If we stand to lose, we stand to lose. But through God, we stand only to gain. And so if you are too poor to repay. And we'll let bishops there on the ground be able to know how people are doing within their congregations and, and decide. They're closest. Captains of tens and fifties are better than captains of a thousand at this. And see, you know what? Don't worry about it. Your, your debt is forgiven. In fact, some people had even been paying tithing out of IOUs. That's how much they were suffering. And they wanted to keep the commandments. They were doing their very best, but I got to eat and I'm, I don't know how to do this. And so can I make an IOU at the tithing office? And to that point, there were, I think, about $150,000 worth of outstanding tithing debts. And again, the church said, half of it, forgive for the poor. If you were withholding tithing because you didn't want to pay, but you have every ability to, then yes, you should still come clean with the Lord and write the balances. But if you're struggling, don't worry. All is forgiven. And the church even gave oh, cattle and, and, and sheep and, and grain to the poor. It was an incredible gift, all because it was this jubilee year. Now, that's 25. 26 and 27 is all we have left. And I want to actually end really with 26. 27 builds off what I just talked about with tithing because 27 reminds them that tithes are required of them. Leviticus 27.30, all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Again, I just need that handful of, of fine flour and oil along with your frankincense. The rest you can have for yourself. The tithe of the land, the tithe of the, of the fruits, it's mine. It's holy treat it that way. And then verse 32, and concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passeth under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. And tenth and tithe are synonymous. That's what God is requiring of us. And thus Leviticus ends. But I want to go back to 26 because in some ways this is really the capstone of Leviticus as it puts in perspective everything we've studied so far and all of these laws of the Lord that bring with them blessings if we obey, curses if we don't, but even still a chance for repentance if we'll come to our senses. That is what the Lord does in this chapter. Verse 3 through 13, here's the blessings. Start with 3 through 5. If ye walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, and yes, I've given you a whole book full of them in Leviticus. Here's my promise. Then I will give you rain in due season especially in a desert place like Israel without a lot of rivers, that's going to be really important. The land shall yield her increase. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage. The vintage shall reach unto the sowing time. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. You'll have enough to go from one season to the next and on to the next. Just trust me. Keep my commandments. I will bless you 
temporally. Well, verse 6 through 8. And I will give peace in the land, and ye shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. I will rid evil beasts out of the land, the human kind as well as the animal kind. Neither shall the sword go through your land, and ye shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase an hundred, and hundred of you shall put ten thousand to flight, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. So blessings of peace. We could use a little more of that during this time of turmoil and conflict in the world. Keep my commandments, and that's what you'll have. How about 9 through 12? I will have respect unto you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and establish my covenant with you. Ye shall eat old store, and bring forth the old because of the new. And I will set my tabernacle among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, like it does those surrounding nations. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and ye shall be my people. There's the spiritual blessings. There's the covenant I made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Seed as the stars of heaven and the sands of the sea, a promised land that will be yours, and all the milk and honey that flows out of it. I'll be yours if, if you'll be mine. Will you have me? I do want to claim you as my peculiar people. Verse 13, I am the Lord your God, which brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, that ye should not be their bondmen. Don't be trapped to them. I have broken the bands of your yoke and made you go upright. So don't hunch over under the burden of newfound sin. I freed you from Egyptian bondage. Please remain clear of Canaanite bondage. And steer clear of Israelite bondage too. Your own self-inflicted sin. There's a prison where you keep the keys. And you can come out. I'm letting you. I will bless you if you do. And if you don't, that's the most of the rest of this chapter. If you slowly read through Leviticus 26, 14 through 39, it is curse after curse after curse. In fact, I'm not even going to list them all. But it's like this rounds and these crescendos and these repeats. If this was a song, it's going to be in a minor key. It's sad. And there's like this, this verse that comes at the end, this repeated refrain to warn them about continued iniquity. He says in 14, if ye will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments. And then he lists a bunch of devastating consequences. But then he says in 18, kind of end of this first round. And if ye will not yet for all this hearken unto me. So this is supposed to be curative. This is supposed to be redemptive turbulence, as Elder Maxwell used to say. I'm trying to wake you up to see the consequences of sin so you'll change and repent. But if even after all that you don't hearken, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. So let's increase by a level of a factor of seven. And then he lists a bunch more consequences. And then in 21, and if you walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, despite all of this, then I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. And then he lists a bunch more consequences. Until you get to 23, where he says, if you will not be reformed by me by these things, and I'm not punishing you to get the, to vent my anger, but rather to call you to change. If that's still not reformatory enough, but if you will walk contrary unto me, then I will also walk contrary unto you. That's the law of the harvest. And will punish you yet seven times for your sins. And then sure enough, he keeps listing consequences. Till you get to 27. 
And if ye will not for all this hearken unto me, but walk contrary unto me, then I will walk contrary unto you also in fury. And I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. And still he lists more consequences. You see how it's intensifying with each round of non-repentance? Finally, in verse 33, I will scatter you among the heathen. Here's one of the first hints we get of a scattering of Israel that lies in their future. All because of unrepented sin. I will draw out a sword after you. That sounds like the Assyrian conquest, the Babylonian captivity. Your land shall be desolate, your cities waste. The exact opposite of everything I promised at the beginning of this chapter. But then notice what he says next. Then, now that you're gone, then shall the land enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, and ye be in your enemy's land, even then, finally, shall the land rest and enjoy her Sabbaths. As long as it lieth desolate, it shall rest, because it did not rest in your Sabbaths when ye dwelt upon it. Do you remember the phrase from President Benson based on what Alma taught in Alma 32, that the Lord will have a humble people and we can either choose to be humble or we will be compelled to be humble. We can either take our pride off or we will be stripped of it. That's our choice. When it came to the rules about enforced empathy we saw last week, God will have an empathetic people and we can choose or be compelled to be. Well, here, the Sabbath will be honored. I, honestly, Leviticus 26 blows me away in terms of the Sabbath day and how important it is to God. This time he carved out, sacred time, to let us come unto him, to rest from worldly labors. It wasn't for him. It was for us that he gave it to us. But if we reject the gift and end up rejecting the giver, then someday we will be rejected of him. And what blows me away about this is just the way it's put. The, the Sabbath will be honored either by you in your land as you honor God or by the land itself with you nowhere near it. The land can now finally rest because you're not working itself or yourself or one another to death, spiritual death anymore. God is serious about this. You'll either have a dedicated people or a devastated land. Choice is yours. But the choice really is yours. And this chapter ends with the choice and chance to repent. Beautiful mercy amidst all of this justice. Verse 40. If they shall confess their iniquity. And we saw chapters about confession here. If they'll do that and the iniquity of their fathers. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled... Cut away that hard-hearted covering. Circumcise your hearts. Humble yourself. And they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity. If they're willing to wave the white flag and, and reap what they sowed, then will I remember my covenant with Jacob. And also my covenant with Isaac. And also my covenant with Abraham will I remember. And I will remember the land. There will be a price to pay. You did sin and justice demands some kind of punishment. But if you've paid the piper and confessed, you've acknowledged 
and reaffirmed the standard that you never quite lived up to, if you'll soften your heart and circumcise it, then I'll remember. I remember you the moment you begin remembering me. This is the prodigal fa the father of the prodigal son rushing off as soon as the son turned around and started coming home. God will do the same. Verse 44 then, even if they do ignore God's calls to repent and end up being punished, yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, there's the scattering of Israel again, I will not cast them away. Neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them, for I am the Lord their God. There's the Book of Mormon title page. That even Lamanites can be reassured that they are not cast off forever. That God is just, but he is merciful and wants to gather them home. They won't be cast away permanently. Then, verse 45, But I will for their sakes remember the covenant of their ancestors whom I brought forth out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the heathen, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. I don't know if there's a better way to, to end the book of Leviticus than with that oft-repeated phrase. I am the Lord. I mean, I guess we could end it with the actual verse that ends the book of Leviticus, the very last verse in chapter 27. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. And that is a good encapsulation. These are the commandments. This is the handbook. This is, these are the rules, the law of God. Will you keep them? And like I said, throughout this book, we've seen so many what's as far as how they're supposed to live. They were supposed to trust in the wise with retrospect and some, uh, some medical improvements, we can see some of the whys. But even if they couldn't, the most important part was the who anyway. Who is giving you this law? God is, and he is holy. Will you trust in him and become as holy as he is through these laws that he's given? That's, I said this at the end of the lesson on... Second, section 132 of the Doctrine and Covenants. That was an eternal lesson, almost as long as this one. Uh, and it was about plural marriage, okay? But I made a point there that I learned from the book of Leviticus, and I'll repeat it here. If you didn't make it through the end of that last one, you probably haven't made the end of this one either. But if you're here, if you're still with me, bless you, my friends, enduring to the end. But here's the thing about I am the Lord. The first year I was going to teach the Old Testament in seminary, I, I'd read the Old Testament before, I love it, but I wanted it to be fresh. I wanted it to come out with power. And so I looked at the calendar and realized, you know, if I read a book a day, I could finish it again before the school year begins. And man, those seminary kids won't, won't know what hit them. Uh, now that's a lot of reading. That's Genesis in one day, 50 chapters. Took us three months to get through it. Uh, but I, I think I can do that if I don't do anything else. One day on Exodus, go for it. 40 chapters, you got to fly. A day on Leviticus, a day on Numbers, a day on Deuteronomy. And that's what I did. I booked it through the Old Testament and learned some amazing things because I was at 30,000 foot level and could see big picture that I never would have noticed when I was going down on the ground. Okay. Well, the day I read Leviticus cover to cover, I noticed what I don't think I would have noticed if I'd gone a chapter a day. And I think where it really started hitting me was chapter 19, where we kept seeing the Lord 
do this, I am the Lord. Do that, I am the Lord. Better not do that, I am the Lord. And over and over throughout that chapter, he says it. Well, okay, I probably would have forgot about it if I just left off at 19 and then read 20 the next day. But no, I was reading. I wasn't stopping. And so I saw it again in 20 and 21 and 22 and all the way through 27, over and over, to the point of almost like, okay, I get it. I know who you are. Do you really have to conclude every verse with that? Well, evidently he... He felt he needed to. But by the time I was done, it had struck me so much, I was wondering, why would he do that? And that's when it hit me. Leviticus is about law, including some strange ones, like sacrificial rituals and uh, kosher laws and high holy days and what to do with different things and the customs and manners of the surrounding nations and what's allowed and what isn't. And you better be able to discern and distinguish. And, and that's when it hit me. Oh, this is like any dad that's telling them what to do. And then when they start going, what? But why? Oh, because I'm your father. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. Or as long as you live under my roof, you've got to follow my rules. And that sounded to me like what God was doing. Uh, you might not know all the whys behind these whats. But if you know the who, that should be sufficient. Now, then I felt really good about my study. I'm like, ah, I'm glad I turned aside to see that burning bush had a message for me, and that's good. Okay, in Leviticus, he wants them to know who is giving the law to them, right there from Sinai. Well, I felt good about that, but I didn't feel like I was done. And if you ever had that kind of unsettled feeling in your stomach uh, or heart where the Spirit's like, yeah, there's more here if you want to keep turning aside. Okay, what am I missing? Oh, am I missing anything? And so I went on the computer and searched for I am the Lord and made sure I had it marked every single time in Leviticus. And sure enough, I, I went through and, and marked them all. And they're everywhere. 45 times he says it. In chapter 11, he says it twice. Six more times in 18. 15 in 19. 3 in 20. 1 in 21. 7 in 22. 2 in 23. 1 in 24. 3 in 25. And 5 in 26. <sighs> okay, I got them all. Now am I done? And again, that little uneasy feeling, no, you're not. Check the rest of the book. I'm like, I did. I checked all of Leviticus. No, the book, the big book. And I'm thinking, the whole Old Testament? Yikes. Okay. Thank heaven for computers. And I went in and searched for every single time, I am the Lord appears in the Old Testament. Now, he does say it every once in a while in the book of Exodus, which I'd missed. Uh, he wants them to know, as I'm freeing you, you weren't forgotten. Will you forget me? We're good here, right? Establishing a new relationship. Oh, and he says it a few other times, scattered throughout other books of the Old Testament. But never does he go off on this as many times as he does in the book of Leviticus. I was joking with my students when I shared this with them that I felt like I had an I am the Lord-o-meter. And I was going through the Old Testament. It was like, deet, deet, deet. And then when I got to Leviticus, it buried the needles. I'll deet, 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 deet. And it's everywhere, 45 times. And then it goes back to normal. It's like, okay, deet, deet, occasionally throughout other books of Scripture. And I finished the Old Testament uh, and was, was okay. Until I wasn't okay. And it was like, no, you're still not done with the book. I'm like, what? The, the whole book. You have a quad. You got all four standard works. Do the whole thing. Fine. So went through and, and never saw it so emphatic in the New Testament. Never saw it so emphatic in the Book of Mormon. But going through the Doctrine and Covenants, there is one place and one place alone where the Lord, where the needle gets buried again. And the Lord repeats with 
so much frequency and emphasis who he is behind these commandments. And yes, it happens to be Doctrine and Covenants 132, which is where the Lord commands the saints to practice plural marriage during that period. And that blew me away. That the Lord realized what he was asking of the saints. Joseph, this one's going to be really hard. I am the Lord. Emma, you're going to absolutely hate this. But please don't hate me. I am the Lord. Saints, this is going to go against everything you've ever thought was normal. Every custom and manner of your surrounding culture. I am the Lord and I need you to trust me on this. You won't know all the whys. You won't even know all the hows. And I, yes, that'll make things a little messy at times. But if you know the who and trust in that, then that will be enough for you. You'll be close enough that you don't feel entitled to an explanation of everything I'm asking of you. You'll know I'm here to help and I will help you. My friends, if you are wrestling with your own rules, God's rules, better said, if you are languishing through Leviticus and just wondering, why is my life this way? And why are things turning out not in the way I had hoped or expected? Then trust the who behind your what's, even in the absence of why's or how's, and come to know a God who wants you to know him. Perhaps even our struggles and trials and that, that sealed heaven it sometimes seems is meant to convince us, to motivate us, to push through and come to know God in ways we otherwise couldn't. My friends, he is the Lord. I pray we come to know that by coming to know him. That's what Leviticus is for. If I had to summarize the whole book again in just a couple of statements. Number one, be holy. Number two, be different. Number three, make sacrifices to remember the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And number four, remember the Lord in all things. I pray that this lesson has convinced us that that is the absolute best course of life. That's how we climb Sinai. It's how we make it to the promised land. I testify of the holiness of God and the holiness he is trying to share with each of us the whole book of Leviticus could probably be summarized actually even simpler than I just did by taking a piece of gold and hammering it into it, engraving in that precious metal a single phrase, but then to tie that phrase, bind ourselves to it right upon our forehead. You know which phrase I'm thinking of? It's holiness to the Lord. It's not just the Levites that need to live it. It's not just the priests that need to personify it. It's you and me, disciples of Jesus Christ, that in every moment, every earlobe and every thumb and every toe, upon our minds at all times, must be holiness to the Lord. Once we get that graven into our hearts and souls, we'll begin to live like the Lord. For he is the Lord, and he wants us to know him.